The following is simply the opinions of two South Carolina citizens. The views expressed herein are not endorsed by any employers, family members, or government employees. This podcast may contain adult language, atypical thinking, and just plain craziness. Be advised that critical thought may be a side effect of exposure to this content. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Vote Matt Podcast. I'm Matt, and joining me today is just me and our guest, part two, with Dr. Doug Williams, um, distinguished professor emeritus at the University of South Carolina. And the, the name of the area you work in, what do they call the, the It's the geographic and it's Earth. What the heck is it? I looked at it the other day. I looked you up on you on Google. Oh, you're talking it's, about the, the new college yeah. of Earth, Earth and Atmospheric Sciences. It, it, like they that. actually changed the name of... It's like Earth, Water, and yeah, Atmospheric Science right. or something like that. So the School of Earth, whatever. Um, it, it changed, actually, after I left. Oh, okay. Um, and bef- on the last show, we had a great time talking about how we met, uh, your early education, your time at Brown, and then at the University of Rhode Island. Or is it Rhode Island University? University of Rhode Okay. Um, I know some schools get a little touchy about that. Like Missouri is Missouri University. Oh yeah. <laughs> and if you say University of Missouri, they'll think you're talking about one of the state colleges. Yeah. Which is different apparently. <laughs> um, but we had a great time. We sure did. Um Caitlin joined us, but she's at work right now. It is noon on a Friday at the undisclosed location deep in the heart of Kershaw County. And uh it's nice outside. It's not too hot yet. I'm Not yet. Hotter, but the sun is intense, but mm. the temperatures, yeah, moderate. Um, so we talked about we left off when you had gotten to University of South Carolina, and you basically dominated there, right? You had some doubters. No, um, I, I, I didn't dominate, but I was I, um, I, I exerted wrong. my influence. There you go. That's good. Um, and what was the nature of your early work at the university there? Um, when you first started there, did you you were teaching? What courses were you teaching? Do you remember? Well, in the marine science program, we have uh, two core courses: marine science one hundred and one and one hundred and two. So mm-hmm. I had those, and then um, uh, and then I, in my PhD research, what I was looking at was uh, microfossils from deep sea sediments. Okay, and they make these shells out of calcium carbonate, just like a clam shell. Mm-hmm. And what I was doing was dissolving those little tiny shells in an acid and then taking the carbon dioxide gas and analyzing that and trying to reconstruct uh, past ocean temperatures and climate change okay. uh, in the marine sediments. Hmm. So when I got at the university, there was no one else doing there. So the first thing I had to do was set up a lab uh-huh. and it's very expensive. Yeah. Um, and um, so you always lead with your strength. Yeah. So, you know, I came out, published a bunch of papers 
um, that I had in the wings when I was a postdoctoral fellow uh, at Brown, okay. yeah. you know, and that, that's what a postdoctoral fellowship is for. Mm -hmm. Do lots of stuff, get ready to start publishing so you can make your mark. And yeah. so that's what I did. But then once I settled in at the university, one of the things I noticed was, uh, uh, first of all, the undergraduates were very talented. Yeah. And they also had a lot of time. Yeah. You know, they were in this thing, you know, yeah, because, uh, you know, they, they go to class and then there's a big break. And yeah, then they might, might, next day they go to a class and some of them work in between. Yeah. But, you know, most of them, uh, but these are inquisitive minds. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I had a lot of ideas. And yeah. so I, when I got a grant, I, I wrote in money to have undergraduates assist me in the lab. Well, when I had them in there. Which is, is, was a new thing, right? Usually it's graduate students or, or is it's it? It's most, mostly emphasis on the graduate students. Yeah. In the marine science program, we had this thing called URAP, the Undergraduate Research Apprenticeship mm -hmm. Program. Okay. The only problem is the guys that were running it had no money. And oh. so it was a way of getting free labor. <laughs> and I, I refused to have undergraduates come work in my lab for nothing. Yeah. I paid them. Okay. Okay. That's good. Which didn't make me popular with the guys that invented the URAP program. I forget that. But anyway, so I'm paying, but as I'm paying, I'm going, Hey, uh, you know, I got this idea. Hey, would you like to do, would you like to do a project? Sure. So the next thing I know, I'm having the benefit of these undergraduates basically doing master's level research. Mm. Okay. And I'm getting the benefit of being able to see my idea take shape or, you know, turn into a, burn up and it was cinder. No, sure. that was no good. Yeah. And uh and so I had just loads of undergraduates working in my lab, mm. helping me with quote my research. Right. But then I would peel them off on different projects. Mm. And we had this thing called independent study. And so they would register for three hours of independent study. Okay. And uh they benefited and I benefited. Yeah. And great. it just it 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 was it was fantastic. And to be surrounded with all these young, bright minds. Of course, sure. I was kind of young then too, but, um, you know, the gloss of youth is gone now. <laughs> now, you know. <laughs> what was the big difference do you think you saw between an undergrad working in your lab as opposed to a graduate student or a PhD student? Did you, did you notice any difference in their enthusiasm level or their focus? Basically, what I'm thinking is like an undergrad student would be more open to more ideas from outside, you know, as a grad student, to me, would be more focused on an area, one specific area? Well, a, a graduate student, I had 40 masters and PhD candidates uh -huh. get their degrees with me. Okay. And, um, yeah, they're more focused because they're on a mission, too. Yeah. Some mm -hmm. to get a master's because they want to go on and get a PhD, and mm -hmm. some that want to get a PhD. And then, you know, get um, – um, I, I had some – I had some students go into the oil industry. Yeah. And in fact, they're still working in the petroleum, oil and gas industry now quite successfully. Um, but then I had some that went into academia. Um, so yeah, so they're, they're more mission oriented. Um, the undergraduates, uh, the, the thing that was cool about them was, um, as I, um, as as they were going along, we have these professional meetings. Mm -hmm. One of my favorites was the American Geophysical Union meeting in San, meeting in San Francisco every mm -hmm. December. I loved going to San, San Francisco. Mm -hmm. So right around uh, August or so, it was abstract time. So yeah. we would we would 
fire up a bunch of abstracts to go to the AGU, right? And I thought, hmm, these undergraduates are doing some pretty cool stuff. Yeah. So quite literally, all right, there would be 3,000 professional geologists and geophysicists at this meeting, and I'd have six undergraduates there. There were no <laughs> undergraduates there. That's pretty And amazing. they were doing poster <laughs> sessions. And I was introducing them to the dean of my graduate school, John Canals, and he would come over and I said, hey, I'd like you to – she's a freshman, she's a sophomore, <laughs> he's a junior, and he's going, what, you're undergraduates? Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, and so as I got into this thing, I actually wrote uh, a white paper, which unfortunately, like a lot of my stuff, I didn't publish. Uh, I published a lot, 200 papers, but this was just – and I called it the wow factor. Because every time I went to one of my fellow faculty members, I said, oh, man, you wouldn't believe what uh, – let me show you what this undergraduate did. Let me show you what, what she did. Let me show you what he did. Mm -hmm. They would go, wow. <laughs> and I went oh. – and I realized that what that meant was, okay, their expectations were so low for the undergraduates yeah. that when they saw this, they would say, wow. So I wrote this – this paper called The Wow Factor about how uh, we, we undervalued undergraduates mm. and you had to be careful how high you set the bar, mm -hmm. but set it high. And what happened was they would be up and they'd be chinning up on the bar. Yeah. And so I didn't say, wow, I just, I just raised the bar. Right. Okay? okay. And just kept pushing them and pushing them and challenging them and they just kept growing and and the next thing you know, I was releasing more control mm -hmm. uh, and giving them more control. Uh, the pinnacle of this really was when I, I rented a ship called yeah. the Verishagan in Lake Baikal. Mm -hmm. All right. So here, here you have – it's 400 miles long, stretching yeah. from Columbia, all right, all the way up to um, Washington, D.C. in length, if all you right. put so it on the East Lake, Coast. Lake Baikal is in Siberia, Russia. Right. And, and it is – the largest lake in the world by volume. It is the deepest lake in the world, and it is the area, the longest the or, oldest. and the oldest. It's they said about twenty five million years old. Uh, is it the estimates? Yep. Um, and we're gonna get like we talked a lot about this in the last show. We were kind of joking around, you know, about how do they find the age of this and that. And I was playing a skeptic, but um, like you said, there's a lot pe people who are a lot smarter than me that figured it out. And uh, smarter than me too. I'm not educated enough to to understand sometimes what they like. Yeah, we're doing this process, so I'm I would just be kind of like, wow, that doesn't that sounds like a bunch of bullshit to me. Like <laughs> I don't understand it. Um, but you notice the coffee mug you're drinking out of today, right? mm -hmm. the NASA the Kennedy Space Center. <laughs> Talked about the moon landing. Yeah, um, that's one of my my favorite places to visit. I visited. Um, took my boys there on a trip. And it was great. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So, what you had your your interest in Russia before you started with these students, or or no. when you just came up with this idea, let's go to Lake Baikal. No, I and, was I was doing this research uh -huh. on marine sediments, right, and trying to understand how the climate of the Earth has changed, what the cycles were like, mm -hmm. et cetera. And it was a serendipitous uh, conversation with a fellow faculty member, Bob, Bob Ehrlich, and he came in and I said, hey, Bob, look at this latest record that we have. And he looked at me and he said, you know where you should be doing this? I said, no, where? Uh, Lake Baikal. And I have to admit, I didn't know 
anything. I didn't never heard the word before. Right. And I said, why? Where's that? He said, ah, no, it's in Russia somewhere. Well, when I was a graduate student down at LSU, it was this guy, Howe, and he had these ostracods, which are freshwater plankton that mm-hmm. make these calcium carbonate shells. Well, I'm working with foraminifera in the oceans, okay? And so these other things make shells. I said, oh, good. Well, I think if I can dissolve the foram shells, mm-hmm. I can dissolve the ostracod shells, and I could do this in Lake Baikal, right. all right? And I said, oh, well, thanks for the idea, Bob. And I wrote Lake Baikal. We had blackboards mm-hmm. back in those days, all right? And then- and what when, year was this? This was in 1988. Okay. All right. right. And so Russia's starting to open up or it's been in the process. I of forgot about out. it. Yeah. For a year. In okay. January 1989. Yeah. All right. Things were happening. It was Glasnost in mm-hmm. opening, perestroika, yeah. a restructuring. Right. And, um, and so, one, and then I, I saw this notice uh, that the U.S. was renegotiating the basic sciences agreement with, the Soviet Union, because mm. it was still the Soviet Union then. And I yeah. looked up at the blackboard and I went, hmm. I called in an undergraduate, mm-hmm. Pete Jenkins from Charleston. I said, Pete, go to the library and, and get every article you can find on Lake Baikal. Came back with about six or seven articles. I went to the bibliography. I went, shh, 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 shh. here, go get these on interlibrary loan. Came back, took the papers home. All right. Over the weekend, came across this one paper that showed not only how deep the lake was, hmm. but the sediments in the bottom was like two or three miles thick. And right. I went, holy S-H-I-T. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is what we're, this is what I'm doing in the oceans. Yeah. I could do it here in this lake. And from what I read about Lake Baikal, people believe that it is the birth of another ocean is what they're saying. It's, it's basically going to, in 20 million years from now, it'll be another ocean. Uh, that the shores are moving apart from each other at two millimeters a year. The mountains around it are growing at five to six millimeters a year. And it, the way it formed was on a tectonic crack. Is that right? Yeah. And yeah, so, tectonics is Greek for movement. Yeah. And what that means is that the earth is broken up into these plates. Mm-hmm. And uh, Lake Baikal is at a boundary. Yeah. Between two of these continental plates that are being rifted or pulled apart. Right. So Lake Baikal is in the rift basin. However, uh, it will take, it will take a long time for, you know, a conduit to open up yeah. to the Arctic. Yeah. Uh, if it would, it would be to the north. Right. Uh, and it might be to something like the Lena River, mm, okay. which, whose headwaters is just on the other side of the mountain range. Yeah. On the western shore of Lake Baikal, and so we we the minerals, um, and sediment in the lake. Can you talk about that? Like what what makes the the Lake Baikal so special about the sediment and the minerals that are in the water and all that? Well, the sediments in the bottom of the lake represent potentially, uh, and this was one of the challenges that we had, um, a record of how. You know, because Asia is the largest continental landmass, mm-hmm. all right? So, where Lake Baikal just happens to be located just north of the Mongolian border mm-hmm. in in uh, Siberia is the most continentally isolated area other than Antarctica. Wow. And Antarctica, we don't have any lakes, right. obviously, because now it's frozen. Well, not yet, right? <laughs> well, actually, believe it or not, there are lakes under Underneath. the ice sheets right. in Antarctica. Freshwater so, lakes. Saltwater. 
Was it salt water? Yeah. Oh, okay. Un- 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 amazing. But anyway, so, um, so it, by getting a continental record of climate change, I could then compare it to what's going on uh-huh. in the oceans. Mm-hmm. How similar is it? Yeah. How different is it? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, unfortunately, these ostracods, uh, the chemistry of the lake is such that, at least right now, the chemistry, uh, when, when the uh, plankton die, mm-hmm. okay, and the shells start to fall down to the bottom, they dissolve. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, my original intention of getting ostracod shells from the sediments mm-hmm. uh, didn't work out. Huh. So, we had to come up with a different way. Okay. And um, I want to, before we get into your trip, I want to talk more about the lake and how special it is. Um, well, like I told you before, I, I didn't, I had no idea about, I know that, it, you know, when you mentioned it, when we first met, I was like, yeah, I think that's the biggest lake in the world, but whatever, it's a big lake. But uh, there's freshwater seals there. Yeah. Nirpa. Um, Nirpa. Which that's, is uh, nowhere else in the world. There's yeah. certain uh, types of fish that are there that are nowhere else oh, in the world. Oh, yeah. Um, they there's have 1,800, 1,800 endemic species in that <laughs> lake, meaning that nowhere else. Back to the continental isolation. Yeah. When you have isolated populations, they change. And they had um, the the volume of it. It's so hard to wrap your mind around. One person said it is the equivalent of the entire Amazon basin. In the lake. One that we would uh, be more easily like, identifiable would mm. take the Great Lakes yeah. here in North North, North America. Uh-huh. All right. They have a larger area, but they're shallow. Sure. You could take all the water, Huron, Erie, all of them, mm-hmm. and you could fill Lake Baikal. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. amazing. 20% it, of the world's standing fresh water. Is it like crystal clear water too? It's, oh my gosh. It's just a- uh, Wow. Yeah, and you can like, see so far down. They say that it has like the most visibility of any other lake. Yeah, um, the the waves can reach. What was the biggest wave you think you saw out there? I was never there in a storm. Oh, okay, okay. Um, I've read anywhere from four to six meter waves. Yeah, well, see, um, the the lake is so steep. Uh-huh. There's not there. The shoreline is real narrow and uh-huh. thin. So it would have to be a big storm to create. Yes. But, you know, as that sure. energy comes into the shore. Yeah. It could all. That's what that's what happens with a tsunami. Mm-hmm. Tsunami is called a long. Uh, it's a um, it's a long wave. Yeah. But what happens is that when it comes into shore, all of a sudden the and it starts to feel the bottom. The height goes up. Yeah. And yeah. so it's probably that effect. Yeah. Um, did you study the, the rocks, the, the, just the rock, cause it's a pebble beach, right? It's all pebbles on the side of the beach. It's not like here where you'd find sand or anything. Is that correct? Yeah. It's peb- yeah, pebbly. Um, I've heard that the waves or read that the waves will pick up the pebbles as they come in and you can see the pebbles in the waves. You were right yeah. And you can hear them. Yeah. That's what, that's what yeah. you can hear the rocks. Yeah, and I read a, that in the book too. He said it's a, it's the strangest sound. There's, I wish we had had a chance to talk about this beforehand. Cause I could have brought you, uh, there's this famous bay called Pistiana Bay. Mm-hmm. In fact, 
when you go there on Lake Baikal, uh, the Russians take you uh, – um, this is one of the stations of the cross. You go oh, to okay. Pestiana Bay. Yeah, and they have the most – roundest, smoothest pebbles. That's what it looked like. It's yeah, just- I would have brought you one. And just to think that, you know, things get rounded over and smoothed in the ocean because of the, the sediment and the contents and all that. But if you, this lake is 25 million years old, think of how long these rocks have been tumbling around through these lakes and they've got to be like glass smooth almost. Yeah, they're, they're really amazing. I used to carry one around in my pocket. Mm. You know, it's, it's almost, you know, you know, just, just, rub, kinda, it. just yeah. rub it between mm-hmm. your thumb and finger. What about the uh, – and then there's the frozen waves. I saw videos of the water coming in and it's frozen, but it's a wave coming in and it's just the crystals are climbing over each other to get up on shore. It's so yeah. crazy looking. Yeah, well, it uh, – it the, the ice, um, especially during storms, it, does, it heaves. Mm-hmm. And so you'll see, uh, you know, like ice that will go seven, eight feet in the air. Mm-hmm. Uh you know, like a slab of ice. <laughs> That'd be um, scary if you're on a boat. <laughs> well, well, when the year of our most successful drilling, uh-huh. I visited the drill ship drill site. Yeah, and um, which we're going to get into that very soon. The, but the, the the, what I wanted to tell you was uh, one day in the afternoon it was beautiful sun sunny day, blue uh-huh. sky. I walked a mile on the ice away from the ship. My Russian friends were just furious with me when they found out that I went out alone. Okay. Yeah. And, um, and then was able to look back at the ship just there with just stuck in ice. <laughs> oh my gosh. And, and you said they did that on purpose to stabilize the ship for the drilling, right. 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 Yeah. That was the way we could stay on station without drifting. Um, did you study at all the, um, the methane hydrate bubbles, the 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 methane that came up from the comes up from the crack. So what I guess what I read was the water goes down into the crack, touches the magma, sends bubbles up. This methane hydrate. No, the uh, no, it doesn't come in contact with uh, no. with magma down there. There are some springs down there, uh, and there are what are known as gas hydrates. Maybe yeah. What happens is when organic matter decomposes, mm-hmm. all right, uh, methane is produced. Okay, but if it's produced under the conditions where it's extremely cold mm-hmm. in the bottom of Lake Baikal, it's just above freezing. Wow. Okay, like zero point four degrees centigrade. All right. And how how deep is Celsius it? Is it down there? Sixteen hundred and forty-five. Meters, meters. So times time, three. Time, yeah, times, times three point three. three yeah, yeah. Two, three point two. Yeah. Okay. So when the methane comes up, all yeah. right, and then under that pressure, it will actually freeze. Yeah. And create frozen methane. They're called gas hydrates. Yeah. Okay. And um, uh, that wasn't part of my study, but it mm-hmm. was one of the satellite things that some other scientists were were interested yeah. in. That's why, like on uh, trash dumps, you'll see that pipes coming up and they're fire coming yeah, they're out. They're burning off the methane, mm-hmm. burning off venting the methane. methane. So that's what that is. That's the methane from decomposition venting at the bottom of the lake. Right. And when it tries to come up, it freezes. And stays locked and stays. in the sediments. Wow. Yeah. So I've seen pictures of bubbles like just below the surface, but not, I'm not sure. Maybe I was missing. You know. Well, a, a lot of that is happening on land in 
shallow swamps and lakes. Oh, okay. Because this methane is also frozen in what's called permafrost, uh-huh. or permanently frozen ground, right. which is not so permanent. Because as the atmosphere warms up, mm-hmm. the permafrost begins to melt. Mm-hmm. And as it melts, it releases oh, okay. the methane that's frozen in it. Mm-hmm. All right. And um you can find you can find it online and YouTube and stuff like that I where, think I've seen people where where they're actually lighting it. Yeah. Yeah, as yeah. it's coming as it's bubbling up mm-hmm. in these shallow lakes and swamps. Pretty neat. Um let's see. And that's pretty much you know. So you started looking at all these articles and then you went into the research of Lake Baikal and was it hard to find any sort of detailed scientific information about Lake Baikal because of the communism and Russia being closed off from the world? Well, the Russian Academy of Sciences is a world-renowned organization. They've uh um and um but most of the publications are in Russian. And right. so um, accessing it and, you know, Russian journals aren't readily available in a lot of our library, weren't readily readily available in a lot of our libraries. Yeah. That's why I had to use interlibrary loan in order to get things from other universities and mm-hmm. they have repositories and things. Um, and uh, there wasn't anything that I could find directly on actually – uh, studying the sediments from the bottom mm-hmm. of the lake. And this is what took the Russians by surprise that someone from the University of South Carolina, who had never actually been to Lake Baikal, yeah. all right, had come up with the idea to drill their, the Pearl of Siberia, mm-hmm. as they referred to it. Yeah. They were like, uh, you know, why didn't we think of this? <laughs> all right. I mean, it didn't, it wasn't stated, right. but it was like, how did you th- come up with this? Probably kind of embarrassing a little bit, you know? Um, well, our first meetings, uh, at the University of South Carolina, there, there, there was a, a bit of, um, uh, nationalism there where, right. we'll stand especially, uh, Lev, uh, Lev Pavlovich Zonenschein, um, outstanding, world-renowned geophysicist. Mm-hmm. He he wanted me and he wanted everyone else in the room to know about uh, the Russian research yeah. in the Baikal Rift Zone and and in Lake Baikal. So, uh, in, in, a, in a friendly but also uh, <laughs> just so you know. <laughs> just so you know. This is our lake. <laughs> yes, yes. And so, you know, so we, we uh, definitely had to get to know one another. Um. Yeah, so that's where the politics came into play, right? Where you had to kind of play, play, use kid gloves, use you know, like be nice, um, ask permission, give respect. And well, it's a matter of uh, earning respect. Yeah, the best way to earn respect is to give it. Yeah, and then uh, then from that, then you can go on to trusting one another, mm-hmm. and 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 don't forget the Soviet Union was was crumbling right the berlin wall had not come down yet um and the coup of 91 hadn't happened yet Mm -hmm. and uh the russian academy of sciences was was uh you know a a well-funded and supported state supported uh institution and that that their state state support yeah they lost state support so all of a sudden 
these Russian scientists that had uh, had something they could rely on was gone. Yeah, they they, they weren't being paid <laughs> anymore. And we read about that in the book too. There was some astronomers. They, you know, they were like, "We haven't been paid in three years." Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. So, so, but they still did the job. <laughs> they're so dedicated. Because they're so passionate. They're dedicated. so passionate. Yeah. So it's, uh, I mean, it's almost like that's who they are. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And um, and so this idea comes along, and so it was uh, the timing. It couldn't have been. It couldn't have been better. But then it couldn't have been worse because right. then all of a sudden, the Russian Academy of Sciences had no funding. It's like, uh, oh, oh no! Like, how, how are we going to pull this off? But then they're looking and saying, "Whoa, you know, here's a lifeline for us. Yeah. Not not just the lifeline, but something that is really new and exciting, and and it also fit in with the evolving theme of global change." Mm-hmm. Um, and understanding the Earth's system, so it 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 just fit right in. That's great. That's but that's perfect. why I went to Japan. I went to Japan to try to bring uh, in not just the Japanese uh, expertise, but you mm-hmm. know there was the dot com bubble at the time. Sure, they were flush with money, <laughs> uh, yeah. and so literally, I, I I went to Japan and brought in a third partner. So that we had Japanese money, we had American money. Mm. There was no Russian money. Okay. How did the Russians feel about doing business with the Japanese back then, based uh, off of you know World War II experience and? Um, at, at that point, uh, no bad blood or anything. Uh, well, no, no, no. I can't say no. Um, first of all, we 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 needed the money. We yeah. had to establish a, a partnership. Um. But there was a distinct cultural barrier yeah. between uh, some Japanese scientists and and, and Russians, mm-hmm. especially Russians from si- from Siberia. Right. Oh yeah. Okay. Because uh, you know the, there were Japanese prisoner of war camps. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were Japanese prisoner of wars that were used as slave labor yeah. to. Uh, for construction projects mm. and things like that, uh, there are still Japanese remains interred yeah. in in Siberia. A lot of atrocities against the Siberian people perpetrated by the Japanese as well. Yes, no, it's a, it's <laughs> it's a fascinating and also a gruesome story. Yeah. But one time, I ha- I had um, uh, Sasha and I can't remember his last name. It was sitting at a small table on my left. Okay, and I had. A Japanese scientist on my right, mm-hmm. and so here I knew just a tiny bit of Japanese, and I'm was really working desperately on my Russian, and uh, I'm sitting there and we're drinking some vodka and getting to know one another. And the Japanese scientist says to the Russian scientist, um, "I have I have a a relative who died here in Siberia." Oof. And is buried here, and in a in a not so friendly way, and I'm going, oh shit, <laughs> and I, I look at Sasha, and he is an engineer for Nedra. He was one of the he was one of the drillers. Yeah. Okay, and he looks across and he said, "We didn't start World War II." Yeah, and so 
I'm, I'm <laughs> a little bit I'm, of tension I'm, there. Yeah. I'm in between trying to, trying to, uh, ameliorate this, yeah. uh, this discussion. It was really, really interesting for me. Especially with what you were trying to do there. You know, you're kind of, it, 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 well, we were into it. We were drilling. Okay. So this, this actually happened at the drill site. Oh, okay. Yeah. You know, we were bringing cores up mm. and sampling and, okay. and everything. And this was a little bit, uh, you know, yeah. in a, in a hiatus where <laughs> the three of us found ourselves at the, at this table and started to get into this discussion. And to tell you the truth, I was not, I, I was, I was, I knew about it, but I was, I hadn't studied it. Yeah. I hadn't. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I was. Yeah, I would imagine from a, a couple different levels. It's the human aspect of what happened. The everybody sitting at the table had nothing to do with it, but you're living in the aftermath. And there, but it's weird how the generational that that doesn't go away. You know, the 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 horrible things that have happened will reverberate throughout generations. Um, that's just an interesting dynamic, especially in that region. Well, um, especially for the Russians. Uh, and, and the Japanese, I'm not discounting that, but, you know, that's one of the things that's happening right now with Putin and this, and this return to a Soviet style repressive regime is, mm-hmm. you know, my first visit to Moscow, I, I landed at Sharon Metvio airport. I was greeted by Lev's, uh, Zone and Shine. All mm-hmm. right. And uh, Misha Kuzmin, the two principal scientists that were at the University of South Carolina. Yeah. And as we are driving in from the airport, okay, they pull off the road, all right, to show me. And then these huge um, steel, and it looked like uh, jacks, you know, like we used to play yeah. jacks. Mm-hmm. Well, they were anti-tank barriers. Yeah. And the first thing that they wanted to show me was where they stopped the Germans. Wow. In the Great Patriotic the Great Patriotic War. War, yeah. That was the First thing they wanted to show me. Wow. And I mean, they drove home, uh, that they haven't forgotten. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yeah. some of them still live it. There's, well, 20 million, uh, or 200 million. I can't remember. What is the number of Russians who died in World War II? It was, oh my gosh. Uh, staggering. Numbers. And, and in fact, um, some, some, some nationalists, Will throw in our faces, Americans, right. that that our, our losses right. are so, right, like, paled in comparison. Like we jumped into the war when it was already over. Yeah, I mean, it's okay. just all kinds of stuff. Whatever. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> we don't need to go there. Yeah, um, but politics did play a role in in your scientific research. There, it had to. I mean, it, just the the times, the late eighties, early nineties, were. Um, pretty sketchy in eastern europe you know with the fall of communism and and then the reforming of all these countries you know we were still saying, in the cold war yeah the cold war had not yeah. ended right so you you had the idea that you asked these kids these college kids undergraduates say i'm going to rent a boat you put together this expedition and we're going to go to lake baikal and do some research as communism is taking its last breaths <laughs> Well, it, it, it well, wasn't. I should say the Soviet it, Union. It wasn't country. in eighty nine. It was it was in uh, ninety one. Right. Still. <laughs> uh, right. But what was happening in Moscow at there in that time? Crazy. Right. Um, so so we we called ourselves the Baikal Undergraduate Research Group, Berg. Okay. And there were f- five young women. Okay, mm-hmm. and one fellow, uh, Jason, and uh, they they planned. 
17 stations from the Southern Lake all the way up. And this was in, in May. Mm-hmm. So the northern uh, part of the lake was still frozen. The ice hadn't, hadn't melted yet. Yeah. And they planned scientific expeditions, stations all the way up there. Uh, I got the money to rent the ship. I got the money to buy the equipment and fly us there and mm-hmm. everything. And then I was there as, as an advisor. And the Russians were like, huh? <laughs> <laughs> These are students, mm-hmm. you know. And well, I mean, we, that's a trip for and, like hardcore scientists who are established in their field. Absolutely. And, yeah. and, and, and then we had some Russian students there too. Okay. okay. And so it was a steep and, and as new as this was. Yeah. <laughs> just, you know, in terms of Russian American relations. It's massive. It, 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 it was. It was just, uh, there's two questions. I want, or Lake, Lake Baikal, the, the channel flows from south to north, right? Um, the, there's not much of a current system. No. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's, uh, there are like 350, uh, rivers and streams mm-hmm. that come into the lake. Only but it one, empties. Only one exit. One exit. Yeah. That's what kind of what I'm Through the Angara that goes through Irkutsk uh-huh. and then goes up into the, eventually into the Arctic. Into the Arctic. Okay. Yeah. And then number two was, um, you're, you're having all these ideas to do this in Russia with these students and you're just, doing your work and you're thinking everything's going to be great. Did the U S government have anything to say to you about it? No. Um, I, I, uh, on three or four occasions were contacted by people who identified themselves as FBI agents mm-hmm. and one as a CIA agent to talk to me about my work in uh, Russia. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it didn't, I wasn't very receptive. Yeah. And, um, so I, I never had a face to face, but every once in a while, my, uh, my phone would ring in my yeah. office and there would be <laughs> quote somebody there. Yeah. Uh, whatever. Um, but well, uh, the money for the Baikal undergraduate research group came from a, uh, private donor. Mm, okay. Um, uh, and, um, the drilling project itself, the funding for that came from a combination of the National Science Foundation. Okay. So I had to, I had to write proposals and get mm-hmm. grants. Uh, the U.S. Geological Survey, which is a governmental agency. Mm-hmm. And, um. Is that when you started receiving the phone calls when you started getting grants? Um, Do you feel like that's when you came on their radar? Or? Well, no, I, I had, I had Russians come to the University of South Carolina. Oh, before so they probably, that. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was the International Geological Congress in Washington D.C. Mm-hmm. and the Russian Academy of Sciences. Sciences, um, uh, well, they had a ship called the Keldish, named for one of their famous uh, academicians, and the Keldish came in with like two hundred and fifty uh, Soviet scientists at yeah. that time into Washington D.C. Oh wow! To to attend the IGC, the International Geological Congress, mm-hmm. and. Um, and I went up to National Geographic Survey, uh, sorry, National Geographic Society was hosting a group of these scientists and hosting a group of American scientists to come in and make pr- p- proposals to the Russians about p- the potential for future research together. Okay. okay. okay? Mm-hmm. And somehow I got an invitation to go, to, <laughs> somehow <laughs> to go up there. Um, and that's where I was told by a scientist, uh, from the university, of uh, Michigan that I, I wouldn't and I shouldn't and I couldn't hmm. uh, drill Lake Baikal. 
And uh, okay, watch you know, this. And uh, <laughs> hold my beer. A la, a la, a la Shell Silverstein, I, I became a did. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, um, so from that, then um, my president of the university flew uh, two of the Russian scientists down to the University of South Carolina for the first meetings. That's face to face. That's great. Yeah. It was, uh, you know, the faculty club. It's the president, James Holderman was a very outward looking president and um and my my pro my idea got his attention mm. in a very favorable way and uh and a few other power brokers at the university and so uh without without their backing mm -hmm. you know uh so so the, the initial backing for me came from the university right all right. the university of trustees i guess and people like people yeah I, I gave a presentation to, to the board of trustees mm -hmm. um i actually uh entertained one president in siberia oh. uh mm -hmm. on our expedition on the angara river mm -hmm. john palms uh he and his wife came with the benefactor william murray okay um and the donaldson charitable trust so i had a combination of university money uh, private money, and then finally, and then finally, it took me a while. It took me like two years to get uh, National Science Foundation money. In the meantime, USGS tried US Geological Survey tried to do an end run mm -hmm. around me because they were able to they they were able to get money quicker. Oh sure, yeah. Uh, because it's non competitive, they got a they got a budget, mm -hmm. but it's relatively not like the National Science Foundation. No. You got to go through this peer review and all this other kind of stuff. <laughs> And they they tried to come in. Uh, they came in with money, which was really really important for our geophysical surveys. Yeah. All right. But then they tried to do a, a hostile takeover of the leadership of the project. But meanwhile, my friend Misha Kuzmin, yeah, okay, right. who had been in said no. Doug is the co Doug is the American chief scientist. That's good. That's great. That and it was great. You did all the work. Uh, as far as making the friendships and, and the connections and, and building the relationships with those people, and they probably valued that much more than the U.S. government saying, well, we're the U.S. government. We'll come to it. Well, I had a different agenda. Yes. My agenda became about the, the I saw what was happening. I saw what was happening to the people, mm -hmm. how their livelihood, everything was being turned upside yeah, down. Right. And – um that's that's why you know in the last show you were talking about me being while I was a professor at the University of South Carolina I was adjunct at Irkutsk Polytechnic in Irkutsk mm -hmm. State University well I I went there to connect with students yeah and to and to do I and to do some lectures and you've been you say you've been to Russia 17 times yeah 17 mm -hmm. times okay. yeah and so I'll, I'll never forget if I could tell you this story because sure. I don't think anyone knows this story. I came back from one of my trips and um, I was watching a, a documentary. It was late at night. My wife was asleep upstairs. My kids were asleep. Mm -hmm. And it was about the state of of um, uh, of uh, birth control in the Soviet Union and what women in uh, in the Soviet Union that uh, abortion. Mm -hmm. Was was the only available means of birth control in the Soviet Union. Wow! And I, I remember sitting there and crying, thinking about all the people I had met. The next day, 
I went to a local pharmacist because I was getting ready to go back to Russia. Mm -hmm. And I literally, okay, uh, they gave me, uh, at their cost, okay, uh, I, I packed a suitcase with condoms, <laughs> diaphragms, <laughs> birth control, anything that I could get. Yeah. Spermicidal foam, you, I, I loaded it up. Yeah. So I had, I had one suitcase which had some, a few clothes in it. I had one suitcase full of birth control methods. All right. And, and I went over there and. How was it going through customs with all that? <laughs> breeze right on through. Okay. Yeah, okay. Uh, this was pre, pre 9 11. Yeah, yeah, that's right. True. Yes. Well, I set off a bomb detector but before 9 11 and well, nobody cared. <laughs> when I got to Irkutsk, mm -hmm. all right, I, I gave this suitcase to Tanya Bunaeva. Uh, cause she was the lead interpreter at the Institute of Geochemistry and my confidant. Mm -hmm. And I said, here, distribute this to you as you know. Yeah. All right. I never heard a word, but I know that it went out into the community. And I know it was like, you know, the Dutch, the Dutch boy putting his finger in the dike. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but right. I, uh, but that, that, that tells you where, where I was at. Sure. Okay. So the science. We talked before about decisions. Yeah. The, the science was number two. Right. The humanity of it was shows. number one. Yeah. And and I bet that showed with your counterparts in Russia where they felt this man's not going to try to take advantage of us. He's not going to sell us out. We're not going to have a Disney World, you know, in Siberia <laughs> in 10 years. Long ways from that. Yeah. yeah. Um, Let's take a break. When we get back, I'm going to talk more about your the um, Berg, the B-U-R-Gs, yeah. um, and how that started and, and that process of you actually getting over there and then what you found in that trip. So we'll be right back. Everybody, please listen to our commercial. Dr. Doug, you listen to the commercial. It's, it's painful to get through, isn't it? <laughs> no. <laughs> nope. Me stumbling and fumbling over. I think we recorded that thing like a year ago, maybe, and... Um, We've polished up a little bit since then, but it's, uh, it's on my list to go by and check it out. Oh, cool. Great. Let them know where you heard it. And uh, we'll be right back. The Swamp Fox Podcast Network is proud to announce our new sponsor, the Swamp Log Artisans Gallery. An old Bishopville building is a home to a store unlike any you have ever experienced. Gift shop, furniture store, local history museum, and art gallery. It's all of these things. There's an inventory here found nowhere else. Presented with an opportunity to make a personal connection to heirloom quality pieces that will honor our heritage and enrich your family's lives for generations to come. Here you will carefully select your pieces created by 60 fine woodworkers, artisans, and artists. The backbone of our store is products handmade from lumber, which is sawn from old-growth sinker logs recovered from the muddy, dark bottoms of South Carolina's rivers and swamps. These logs were lost over 125 years ago as they were transported on the waterways and were recovered with scuba equipment. Check them out at www.swamplogartisans.com or visit them at 229 North Main Street in downtown Bishopville, South Carolina. Yeah, man. I'm super excited about the uh, kiln-dried lumber. Mm -hmm. You just buy the rough-cut yeah. slabs. Yeah. And also the paintings. Mm -hmm. um, the no, they've got some really cool stuff. I want to see that. I mean, it's just beautiful framework. And from looking at this brochure, some pretty nice art. Uh, I might go out there today. Are they open today? Yeah. Awesome. So I would love it for Swamp uh, the Swamp Fox Network people to uh, support this company and just let them know where you heard about it. Welcome back, folks. Thank you for listening to our commercial. Thank you for um, patronizing our sponsors, the Cassock Country Store. 
home to the best pizza in Cassett. Go see them for all your needs. If you need plumbing supplies for your uh, home or you need a pizza, you need beer, uh, what else they got in there? Fish hooks, shotgun shells, anything you need. Um, they have it. Also, uh, you can go to patreon.com slash vote map podcast and you can become a patron and donate some money to the show if you want. That would be great. You can go to anchor.fm slash swamp fox network. You can donate there. You can also leave us a voice message. Um, you can go on Apple. Uh, what, are, what do they call it? iTunes? Apple Podcast? I think it's Apple Podcast now. Um, and you can rate us. That would be great. Even if it's one star and you want to talk some shit, go ahead. I don't care. Just interact. That'd be great. Um, before we left, we'd started talking about the um, Baikal undergrad research group, undergraduate research group. And uh, we talked. We got into the politics of it and, and the process. But um, when you formed your group of these undergraduates, what was the first meeting like? Did you did they know what they were getting involved in when they when they signed on for this? Well, there was a precursor to it. Mm -hmm. um, we're in Columbia, in the center of the state, down at the coast. We have a marine lab mm -hmm. in Georgetown, South Carolina which sits on uh, right next door uh, a huge estuary called Winyah Bay. Mm -hmm. And so as, as part of being a professor in marine science, leading field trips down there and everything, um, uh, I was sponsoring a group of undergraduates to go out and study Winyah Bay. Okay. And I had a 21-foot aqua sport, mm. and I basically – said, here, you guys want to use my boat? Mm. And I went and bought, uh, I can't remember where I got the money now, some pretty sophisticated equipment that uh, most undergraduates never get a <laughs> chance to hear about. Yeah. Um, and uh, and I had this one really talented uh, student, a lot of talented student, but one in particular, Strahd Armstrong. And Strahd wanted to study the physical circulation in uh, in Winyah Bay, and so um, so I had a group of students, and I would go down with them, and they, they would be going out doing surveys, taking water samples. There's a huge. Um, there was a steel mill there in Georgetown mm -hmm. that was active at the time, and there was a, a pulp mill that wow. was just putting unbelievable amount of effluent into into Winyah Bay. I mean, just shockingly horrifying effluent that was just going right in. Mm. Um, so we were down there doing sampling and stuff. Then it got so popular that uh, I went from – Strahd would still use my boat to go out to do – it's called an acoustic Doppler profiler. Mm -hmm. So he would send this just like we do for detecting uh, tornadoes, yeah. a Doppler signal. Mm -hmm. he, he would send this Doppler signal down. It would be able to tell you the direction and speed of the currents. And, wow. you know, from the surface all the way down. Cool. Straw was, he was magical with this thing, right? Mm -hmm. So he'd be out with my boat. And so I, I rented, um, a huge pontoon boat. Uh, and, um, I'm trying to remember the name of the captain now. Great guy. Uh, and so I could get, I could get 20 students on this. Yeah. And so we would go out. And, uh, and then we would do, be doing sampling on, on this platform. Strutter would be out doing ADCP work with four or five students on this. And, uh, and so from this, then 
when I was going to Russia, mm-hmm. I have no idea where the idea came from to then so to going from Winya Bay, but it's it's not it's not that it's not an unimaginable leap Just to a go from scale, to right? go from this yeah <laughs> to go to, to the world's deepest lake. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So out of this group, mm-hmm. you know, I advertised. So Winya Bay was their training ground. Right. All right. This was this was their entree into the world of doing marine research, multidisciplinary. They were all doing different things, taking responsibility. Okay, being responsible. Um, and learning, you know, learning, learning how science functions. Mm -hmm. And then, so then I I took this group, said, okay, all right, how would you like to study the world's deepest lake? And so we would meet, uh, weekly or every, every, every other week. And we would bat around ideas, learn about the lake. All right. So they were transferring what they were learning in Winyah Bay into Mm -hmm. what they were going to be doing. And like my call, and then I was fortunate enough to get the money, yeah. and um, fortunate enough to bring them there, uh, and uh, bring them home all safely. <laughs> um, I I don't even remember ever anyone signing even a release form. <laughs> well, I mean, me I, I look story. back now, and I'm going. You, I had to be completely out of my mind. Tell the story about them. You're just letting them go out on a little. Uh, John boat. Well, <laughs> that was another expedition. Oh, was it a different one? Okay. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's <'cause... laughs> Sorry, that was another expedition. So this first one, where did you where did you put in at? Where did you start? Oh, down in uh, from Irkutsk, you, you take a road down to the southern end of the lake, mm-hmm. and there's uh, a little village there called Listvianka, and that's where there were pier and there were ships. Uh, that's where Vereshagin, uh, another famous mm-hmm. uh, Russian. Um, academician who studied Lake Baikal, and um, that's where the Verish. So we met the Vereshagin there, mm-hmm. and then uh, and then took off, and we were gone for almost three weeks, yeah. all the way up Up and north. all the way back. Okay, and what were some of the things that you found? To tell you the truth, I, during our break, I was sitting here thinking uh, how much I've forgotten. <laughs> and, no, no, seriously, and. You know, back in the day, it was a 286 computer. Yeah. Uh, no laptops, mm. no social media. Just handwritten notes. So, and- so I, I, I've, I've, um, I, I, I've lost track. Mm. I, I know the students went to meetings and they gave, uh, I've, I've lost, uh, I, I feel guilty now. I've, lo- I've lost track with the students. Yeah. You know, your, your podcast has, uh, dredged up a lot of old memories. Mm-hmm. Um, and some other changes in my life, going through my attic and rediscovering stuff and going, wow, I forgot about that. Um, usually mostly positive, thank goodness. Good. <laughs> um, but um, but in, in hindsight, you know, I, I wish I had done better diligence in staying in contact with the students. That's uh, hard. That's really tough. Well, it's it's life. Yeah. It's not like I haven't been busy. I'm sure they haven't forgot about you. Um, that one would hope. Yeah, I'm sure. Well, I learned a long time ago: if you're going to do something, do it. Do it for first principles. Yes, and because it's good. Mm. But don't expect to be thanked. No, all yeah, right, right. No, because if you expect to get thanked, you'll <laughs> most often be significantly disappointed. Right. But when you are thanked, mm. oh my gosh! I'm sure at the time these students probably didn't realize how much of an epic uh, event 
event this was in their life. They probably uh, didn't really appreciate the significance of it. And well, probably, through, through your podcast, more people will potentially come to know about this. It's it's unknown. Right. I mean, um, you know, I'm reading books about how other people have traveled through Siberia and Russia and done the Lena River and all this, and I'm reading these books. I'm going, oh, I did that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. but I uh, – Most no, of those people were like exiles to Siberia or uh, Russian scientists or um, – adventurers from Europe or something like that, right? And, um, yeah. Well, you know, I haven't um, – There's been a few er, Americans. Early on in, in the early days when uh, when websites were just starting to become the big thing, uh -huh. okay? You know, and I had, uh, I had uh, uh, an assistant professor come up to me and go, uh, Doug, uh, why don't you have a website? And uh, he said, because people don't know what you're doing and all this other kind of stuff. And I went, yeah, yeah. Well, as it turns out, I had a Russian graduate student, Pavel Romashkin, did uh, did up a website for me. Wow. And it was back in, uh, well, maybe it was 1990. I, I, I don't even know if the website is still up. Uh -huh. Do you know what it's called? <laughs> nope. Wow. Nope. And I, and I don't even... Uh, it was tied to the Department of Geological Sciences oh, okay. at the time and uh, never revised it, never changed it. It's just like my Blue Marble Science website. Mm -hmm. That went up in 2007 and I've never updated it or changed it. It's just um, if people if, if people know about what I've done in my life, great. If they don't, I don't really care because no. I did it. You did it. Yeah, I, I no, but I did it. I, I always have a different agenda. You didn't do it to get famous. Uh, -uh. You, didn't, nope. you didn't have the intent of, nope. of making it, a movie. It's, it's <laughs> not about me, right? Yeah, and that's that's the way to do it. Well, it's that's, one way to do it. You know, it is then, one way to but, do it. But, but then again, then again, sometimes I say, "Oh man, you know, I I should have done this. <laughs> I should have done that. You know, yeah. maybe people would be interested. Maybe not." When I retired from the university. You know what I, you know, uh, I had this one secretary because I was, I always tried to stay in really good relations to the support people mm -hmm. in the department. And she said, Oh, oh, you're going to be retiring. So, uh, you know, we need, we need to have, always have a retirement party, right? <laughs> um, she said, So we're going to have a retirement party. I said, Nope. Yeah. I said, Uh, I'm going to go around. I'm going to say goodbye to the five or six people that really care about me. <laughs> I'm going to turn in my keys and I'm not going to yeah. let the doorknob hit me in the ass. Yeah, that's the way. That's what I, you yeah. know. And that's how I went out. I did the same with the arm. Locked it yeah. up, turned out the lights. Good. And I haven't been back since. That's closure. That's, you're moving on. Next chapter, right? Yeah. And it's, yeah. Moved on pretty, Good. pretty well. So you had all these expeditions with student, undergrad students to Russia. How many trips do you think you made in all with undergraduates? Three, three. Um, again, being in in, the, in Siberia, and I, I was there so often. You know, I'd be doing a drilling project business, but mm -hmm. then I'd be at Irkutsk Polytechnic Institute. Sure. Okay. No, sorry, four different, okay? four undergraduate. We years. did okay. did Berg, and then I came up with the idea of Reset, Russian American Environmental uh, Studies, and we studied the environmental status of the Angara River from Irkutsk. This is the only outlet from Lake 
by call, all right, all the way up to this huge hydroelectric reservoir in Bratsk. Mm -hmm. And Bratsk is this big industrial area. Um, and so I got uh, private money from uh, the Donaldson Charitable Trust, and uh, and we took an expedition. Uh, I put uh, 20 uh, American and Russian students together through Irkutsk State University, mm -hmm. and we had this scientific expedition on this on this converted barge, okay, into a residential area, and we converted into laboratories and stuff cool. from Irkutsk all the way up to Bratsk. Man, that'd be so fun. All right. I wish I would have studied harder in high school. And then, <laughs> okay, and then um, um, in 2000, my drilling project was done, but I partnered with a faculty member in uh, Russian studies, and this was 2000. So the idea was, uh, you know, it was the Russian Federation for 10 years, mm -hmm. okay? after the coup in 91, all right? So in the year 2000, I again partnered with Yerkut State University, University of South Carolina, Honors College, and we paired up Honors College students with a Russian student, and we spent two weeks in Siberia, all right, examining uh, the, uh, the cultural status and political status of Russia oh. since the breakup of the Soviet Union. Okay. That that was amazing, and then then all my funding for the drilling project and everything ended, but I had two Russian scientists working in my lab, Yevgeny uh, Borisovich Karabanov, all right, and Alexander uh, Alexandrovich Prokopenko, um, and we we're going. Well, what's what's life after my call? And I had a friend I went to graduate school with who was at the National Science Foundation. He said, "Hey, Doug," he said. Uh, don't know if you're interested, but we're really, uh, there's a, a lot of interest at NSF in understanding, uh, sea ice formation in the Arctic mm -hmm. and uh, fresh water input into the Arctic. And so, uh, Evgeny, who was just like a brother to me, uh, uh, and I, we looked at each other and went, hmm, the Lena River's headwaters is just on the other side of the mountains. Yeah. <laughs> Fifth longest river system in the world. All right. From, Columbia, South Carolina to Los Angeles. Wow. That's how far it is. That goes north all the way through Siberia to the Arctic. One of the largest deltas in the Arctic, the Lena Delta. Huh. Let's study the freshwater outflow, uh, into the Arctic. <laughs> and go. so darn if we didn't get a grant. And guess who I enlisted? Strahd Armstrong. Oh, so Strahd and a team of undergraduates, we, we rented this ship. Okay. And uh, now we didn't start at the headwaters. Uh, like um, we we had to go down to Uskut uh, uh, where there was uh, we could actually get a ship, all right. And then we went uh, two thousand two hundred and fifty miles Oof. all the way up the Lena River wow. uh, from the boreal forests into the tundra, the treeless plain, mm -hmm. permafrost all the way up to the Lena Delta. Along with me was one graduate student. Um, Janielle Rivera. I used to joke with Janielle that he was the uh, first uh, Puerto Rican <laughs> to go <laughs> into the Russian Arctic, yeah. and he did his dissertation on sediment cores. His P he got his PhD studying sediment cores uh, off of the off of the Lena Delta. Awesome. We were there for two months. Wow, two months going up this river. What's was, the, how warm does it get up there? 
Unbelievable. Oh, like what's the warm warm time? Oh, oh, in the daytime and warm out. Daytime, it would get up into the seventies, and there were (laughs) mosquitoes like you wouldn't believe. Yeah, I've heard that's an issue there. Nothing I've ever experienced. Mm. So those are the those are the what four or five? I can't. I lose track. Okay, and then we when you got into um, you had the idea to drill Lake Baikal. Yeah, well, that was that was the that was the jumping off point right. to that led that was like the trunk, mm-hmm. and then there were all these branches that involved undergraduates. Okay, that made it possible. So the Lake Baikal drilling project came first. Oh yeah, nineteen eighty nine. Oh well, I should have read more in your bio. I guess that's my fault. No, that's okay. No, no, I, I thought I of the it. drilling, but once I was into the drilling project, yeah. and I told you I had a, a different agenda. Uh-huh. All right, so. You know, most people thought that, that I was just in it for the science note, but then I created Berg, I created Reset, okay, uh, ended up, uh, w- once the drilling project was done, then we did a moment in time, which was studying the culture and political mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. status of uh, Russia and Siberia through the Russian Studies Program, yeah. and then the uh, Lena River project, yeah, the which... Uh, we, we've published several papers. You brought the first Puerto Rican to the Arctic. <laughs> yeah, but th- all those all those four things involved undergraduates. Uh, that's amazing. Um, was there anything, you know, drilling Lake Baikal, so it's 3,000 some odd feet deep, right, at the deepest point. Were you guys, were you wanting to drill at the deepest point or you were? No, um it wasn't a matter of the water depth. It mm-hmm. was uh, – we had to do uh, – and this was where the U.S. Geological Survey came in. We had some early Russian uh, – it's called seismic uh, stratigraphy. And what it does is – uh, seismic means sound. Mm-hmm. So we use, we, use, we use the sound energy from earthquakes right, to study the interior structure of the earth. And so we produce a sound source – from the surface of the water, and it goes through the water and then penetrates through the sediment. And you can tell how thick the sediment is. Wow. You can tell the internal structure, the layering of the sediment. And so the Russians, that's one profile from a guy by a scientist by the name of Nikolaev, um, who, who is really interesting. We were talking about plate tectonics before, mm-hmm. the movement of the plates. Right. Well, when I first got to know the Russians, it was still being debated. There were the, as they said, the fixists, fixists, the fixists, those that didn't believe in plate tectonics, oh. and the mobilists. Okay, <laughs> so well, there are people who believe the Earth doesn't move; that these plates don't move. Right? Or there's other people that believe. That yeah. Well, as it turns out, Nikolaev was a fixist. Oh, okay. A fixist. He didn't believe that it was a rift zone. But then I had Zonenchine, okay, and Kuzmin, the two guys that I was first starting to talk with. Okay, yeah. they were mobilists. Okay. And so one of the first questions that I got asked, okay, in Washington D.C. was. Are you a fixist or a mobilist? <laughs> I'm going, what, what? are you talking about? <laughs> and I said, no, I'm a mobilist. And they go, oh, great. Oh, I'm a mobilist. All right. It's so, like the flat earth, round earth argument going on. Uh, <laughs> on a, almost on the same scale. But so uh, that's where the USGS came in. They had mm-hmm. superb marine geophysicists. Yeah. And at a Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, all right, the USGS was able to, before I had NSF money, was able to because they they had they had internal money yeah. they were able to mobilize a team and go there and do the first geophysical surveys 
And it was on that basis that we selected our drilling sites. Okay. Where, where the sediments were thick, maybe not the thickest and maybe not, and not the deepest, but where it looked like the layering was undisturbed, where we could get a, oh, a, 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 as complete a record as possible. Yeah. Um, was there any shocking discoveries that you, when you pulled the core up and you, you know, you open the thing up and you're like, shit, this shouldn't be here. This is weird. Well, not really. Before this happened, we did go out and take short cores. Mm hmm. All right. You basically you take like uh, test cores, a, 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 or something a, like yeah, that. lead weight and a tube, yeah. and you lower it over the side, and you poke it in the bottom, okay. and you pull it up, and um, and so we had they're called piston cores because you use a piston to kind of hold on to the sediment, uh -huh. and so we had some of them, and we extensively studied them, brought them back to the university because remember I told you about those plankton called ostracods yeah. that mm -hmm. make these beautiful shells that don't aren't preserved. Well, we had to figure out, okay, so we think there's a signal of the climate in there. Well, what is it? Right. We had to figure it out. I was told I wouldn't do it, shouldn't <laughs> do it, couldn't do it. And, okay, so ostracods went out the window and mm -hmm. that gave me some sleepless nights. Yeah. Because that's what I was I was planning on. So, oh, shit, what am I going to do now? Well, that's where Pete Jenkins comes in. I said, hey, Pete, hey, for your master's thesis, how about – and I had a, I had a Chinese student, Ling Ching Chu – Okay, and so it was Ling Ching that actually developed the technique to measure there's another plankton in the lake, all right, that makes shells out of silica called diatoms. Oh, okay. okay. Very, very important uh, members of the marine community, but also in lakes. And so Ling Ching came up with a technique, all right, to analyze the biogenic, meaning coming from not from clay minerals, mm -hmm. not from rocks, but from the diatoms, all right, which are biological, biological material, biological, biogenic silica. And so, uh, he and Pete, okay, were making this, the first measurements. And lo and behold, we had periods when there was a lot of, a lot of diatoms and periods when there wasn't many and periods when they were a lot. Now, and the you, trick is, is this have anything to do with the climate? Right. That's so what these are ask, all huh? the things that we had to work out, but. And so would there be a, uh, you know, in trees, in the rings of trees, you can see temperature changes. If it's a more milder season, the mm -hmm. rings are thinner. If mm -hmm. it's a harsher winter, the winds are thicker, mm -hmm. the fires. And then mm -hmm. is it the, kind of the same thought with, with a biological material at a lake? Like the thicker shell means something, something or thinner shell, whatever? No, no. We, well, there was a, um, and I, I worry about her, uh, Galina Bezrukova. I can't remember her patronomic name. Um, was a diatomist. Um, no, uh, Galina Khrushchevich. Um, Bezrukova was studied pollen. Um, but, uh, Galina Khrushchevich, who's from Belarus, and, you know, Belarus mm -hmm. is smack dab in the middle of this Ukraine Putin thing. Mm -hmm. Um, there, um, anyway, I worry about her. I wonder how she's doing. But, Amazing. Oh my gosh. Amazing woman. Amazing scientist. Uh, it's a little, little, little short thing. All right. She's got to be five foot four and what a worker. She must have looked at 10,000 samples and counted all the species of the diatoms. Wow. 10,000 species <laughs> oh samples. Gosh. Okay. And so we had changes in the, 
the floor, the plants, the mm -hmm. microscopic plants, what they are, right? And so we had her signal, and then we had the biogenic silica signal, and we also knew something about the ecology of the diatoms okay. from studying them today. And so we were able to make inferences that, uh, yes, this looked like it was warm and cool and warm and cool. We weren't sure about the time now. Mm -hmm. We don't have the resolution of a, of a tree ring. Yeah. We don't have the resolution uh, present in ice cores. Okay. Which have annual rings, okay? Right. Uh, going back over a half a million years, by the way. Allegedly. Just, um, <laughs> Just amazing. No. <laughs> if you count them, it was there. <laughs> okay. But, uh, but anyway, um, the, uh, so we, we had to do some other things to try to learn about time. That's amazing. So was it, um, was there a point where Lake Baikal was completely covered up by, uh, Every year. Um, ice. No, I mean, you know, the, the ice shelf, uh, you know, like we have here in the United States, in North America, where the, the glaciers were, you know, they can tell where the glaciers oh. pushed down and just yeah. mounded up yeah. massive miles of dirt. And, and then when they retreated, I think they, what was it, the, the Younger Dryas era or something like that? Yeah. They retreated. And, well, um, the um, the ice sheet in, um, in Asia did not extend down to Lake Baikal. Okay. Yeah. So, like, the Great Lakes mm -hmm. actually were formed – by a uh, glacial advance, yeah. and you know the 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 first movie Ice Age, by the way, yeah. um, was spot on scientifically. The rest of them are garbage, <laughs> but the first one spot on. Wow. You know, with the you know Manny Diego were and their friends were were trying to escape from the melting of right. the ice sheet from mm -hmm. the glacial maximum. Yeah. Um, and um, and uh, but that's how the Great Lakes formed mm. because. The, pretty much all the lakes in northern in, in North America. Oh, um, that's why Minnesota is the point. is the land of the lakes. Yeah, I was yeah. on some in Washington State. Glacial in the oh, Olympics yeah. that the water's so clear, it's a fifty foot lake, and you can see down the bottom like it's a creek. It's unbelievable. It's right. eerie, actually. Well, the Great Lakes were formed by scouring of the advance of the ice sheet and mm -hmm. then melting, advance of the ice sheet and melting. All right, but it, it's it's basically sitting on bedrock, and so they're really. They're really shallow, whereas Lake Baikal is being the rifted fracture, apart, yeah. okay? And, so where and, the water's and not, coming and, from. And not glaciated. The water that's filling Lake Baikal is coming from melt, snow melt from the mountains, or is it well, well, there's, from underneath? There's watersheds, uh, areas where water is draining off of, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, north of Baikal, all the way to the east, and all the way to the south, there's over 350 rivers and streams. Okay. The Salinga River being the biggest, and it has a big delta, too. That's all right. That uh, So how does Lake Baikal get so clear? If there, these river, rivers are usually muddy, dirty waters. Yeah, but they're right? coming through these, um, these mountain passes. Okay. So they're kind of okay. getting so filtered. It, they're filtered out. Yeah. All right. So the lake um, – in fact, you know, there was a, a – uh, I didn't think to bring it. I actually have two. Two. Uh, I have some commercially bottled water from Lake Baikal. <laughs> wow. The idea, you know, mineral uh, water. Yeah. yeah, and in the 1990s, especially, you know, that's when bottled water was really hitting its stride. Okay, mm -hmm. and um, and so down in Lisvianka, there was uh, a bottling plant. And and what they did was they didn't want to take it from the surface, mm -hmm. so they they put this pipe way down like 
like a thousand feet <laughs> down uh, in the lake, and yeah. they were they were bringing water up and bottling it and trying. I don't know if this I don't know if it's still commercially available or not, but I have uh, I, I have I have some bottle. I have two two different bottles of uh, water at home cool. well, in my to, collection. Now you got to come back again. Which you're always welcome, like we said, anytime you I've want to come I've got some out. good vodka, too. Oh, okay. Well, that's always welcome. <laughs> we, we we could do shots of uh, Baikal water. Get some black bread and, and herring and- uh want some caviar. So, yeah. I've never had caviar, but- Oh, caviar. Uh, listen. We use fish eggs for fishing and for trout. Listen. In, in 1989, <laughs> 1990, hmm. the, the head of the Russian super deep drilling program, Nedra, uh, the Russians don't like to say his name. He's from the Caucasus because it's a mouthful. It's Bilal Nazrulayevich Khachayev. <laughs> and so they call him Boris. Okay. <laughs> but I call him Bilal. All right. Mm-hmm. I, I, I refused to take the Russian way out. Okay. Mm-hmm. But he, he came to South Carolina and you know that mason jar of moonshine that I just gave you? Allegedly. Okay? He w- excuse me. Uh, <laughs> He he, black caviar. He yes, I mean today that's thousands that'd be worth of thousands of dollars. Okay, yeah. <laughs> and I didn't understand at the time. I had never had caviar before. Mm. Okay, but oh my gosh, mm. I learned to love Russian caviar. Mm. Okay. okay, but you know what? For drinking vodka, you need pickles. Uh pickles. Yeah. Yep, and cucumbers. And you got some pickles, didn't you? We'll give you some pickles. Oh, I've been, Did you try them? Oh, making hamburgers. <laughs> They're really good, aren't oh, they? Yes, awesome. <laughs> Caitlin did a great I'm, job. I'm, I'm already halfway through this. Yeah. <laughs> We're waiting on our dill pickles to uh, set up. They take a while. Cool. Um, okay, so that's that's really cool. Um, is there anything from the drilling project that you, you know, obviously it's probably an ongoing. Are they still drilling? Are they they're done? Like how many, how many years did it run? We first tried it in 1990, and it was a failure. Um, we were still uh, developing the technology, mm-hmm. and um, and it, it was it was scary. It was a big disappointment. I I thought I thought now I'll never get funding from the National Science Foundation, yeah. but somehow I snuck through that. And then in in 91 and 90, 93, we 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 drilled six times mm-hmm. in the lake and finished in 98. No, oh, okay. Over that time from 1990 to 1998, Russia went through a pretty significant political change, right? Oh, yeah. Did, how was that through the Siberians' eyes? Like the people who live in Siberia have always been kind of like the the stepchildren, the unwanted stepchildren of Russia, right? They're kind of there. Uh, seven time and, zones away from Moscow. And it's got to be pretty sad to know that the Western Russians sending all their prisoners to because you live in such a shitty place, supposedly that oh they're going to you know all, all the place all the prisons like there's so many prisons in Siberia there's and yeah, uh, made famous a, by Solzhenitsyn. It's a harsh place, I should say. It's not you know, it's harsh. Um, um, yes, it is. You know, when I used to go there in the winter, people here would say. You go there in the winter. So, oh my gosh, it's magnificent. You dress for it. 
You think that was just American propaganda talking about Siberia being this horrible place? No, like, it well, it has a horrible history. Yeah, um, and as you know from uh, your readings of Ian Frazier's book, mm. um, very interesting history and very complex yeah. history. Sad. And um, you know, and uh, you know what the depressed me? It, the book is depressing almost because he's driving these roads and constantly referencing the piles of trash everywhere. Everywhere they would stop to eat, just trash piled up bigger than flies and, you know, human waste, trash everywhere. And uh, that is so depressing (laughs) for some reason. Well, it's because in the Soviet time, they weren't investing in the infrastructure. Mm -hmm. The niceties of life were... I I myself have actually... uh, you know, stood in line for an hour and a half to buy a loaf of bread. Yeah. Okay. And as an American who... By and that's just I, one line in the grocery store, you who, were saying. Then you had to go out and get in the meat line, right? Yeah. Yeah. You, you, you go into this very sterile hall-like thing, right? And it were, there, was, there was a kiosk. First of all, there were five different kiosks, and you could buy meat, a kielbasa at one, bread at another, milk at another, cheese at another, and maybe some kind of fish. All right, and each one of them had a different kiosk, so mm-hmm. you would go up and you would buy, you know, a kilo of, uh, of 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 fish, and you'd have to wait in line <laughs> to get the the chit. Okay, right. and and then you would have to go to the fish line, and you would have to wait in line. Wow. To get to get your fish. And well and then if you wanted milk, you had to wait in line get to get chit. a chit for the milk and then you had to wait in line to actually turn in your chit and get the milk. Wow. So when I would go into Russian homes and I would see the spread yeah. that these women mm-hmm. or this woman put out there, first of all, I was so humble because I'm going to myself, Oh my gosh, the time that was is invested in this table. This is something and then they're they're sharing with me <laughs> on this table things that they have been hoarding right. and saving hours for of months. Their life no, spent. for months, and it's all being laid out here because I'm the guest of honor. Wow! And then they would have uh, um, even even in in the nineties, right? They still had cells. So the people that would be at this table in this home. Mm-hmm. were people that they trusted. Oh, yeah. Okay. So after going to Russia for a couple of years, and I, I fell in love with Tatiana Bunaeva, okay, and so I told Tatiana, I said, uh, all right, it's about time. I want to put together, I want to have a party, mm-hmm. all right? And so I said, I, I want to invite, uh, will you help me? And of course, she said, yes, we're going to use her apartment. I said, okay, I want to invite these two people, 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 okay? And she looked at me. She got this concerned look on her face. She said, um, you know, you know all these people, and they know you, but these people normally don't socialize. Mm. Okay. That's an interesting cultural thing. Oh, my gosh. It was uh, like... Uh, so well, they have their inner circle, but they're not... Yeah. Yeah. Well... Uh, well, w- with her help, we pulled it off. Okay. We had an absolutely marvelous time. Nice. But it made me realize, okay, uh, the things that I was completely ignorant of. Sure. Yeah. 
And how else are you going to learn unless you right. – this is what learning is, right? Yeah. Yeah, I was ignorant then mm. and I'm still ignorant now. But I was mm. learning the customs and yeah. and the, the do's and the don'ts. Yeah, the first time I ate at a Korean family's house, uh, it was my roommate, Kim Han Suk. And uh, we went to his parents' apartment and his mom had all this food for us. And, you know, every, in Korean, everything's in little dishes. Every, and she made my plate and I ate my food. Like a good American boy, I eat everything on my plate. And then she got up from her table, her seat, came around and just piled food up on my plate. This massive mountain of food. And I was like, I looked over at Kim. I said, Kim, I can't eat anymore. Like I stuffed myself to finish all this food. And he said, well, she thinks she, that you're telling her you didn't, she didn't give you enough. And that's kind of like an insult, you know, to her that she didn't feed you enough. So now right. she's like, oh, okay, that wasn't enough food. How about this? Right. <laughs> and wow. I had to, you know, I apologized profusely and I said, really, I, you know, and he explained to his parents, that's an American culture. That's the, the you know, eat everything on your plate. He was Don't being take- polite by eating everything <laughs> on his plate, not knowing that he was offending you. Right. Yeah. And How else are you going to learn? Yeah. You don't know. So the next time I knew you yeah. leave a little bit of rice, a little bit of fish, a little bit, you know. Right. Interesting. If you want more, get more, but always leave a little bit on your plate. Yeah. You know, in, in, in Russia, okay. Um, there's no cocktail hour or anything. Uh, people come in it's cocktail and, day and, and every, every <laughs> yeah, everyone uh, in Russians, uh, Russians laugh about the way um, uh, Americans would have a, a party. Mm-hmm. You know, you arrive at the host's house, you know, oh, would you like a glass of wine? Would you yeah. like a cocktail? And everyone, they say, Americans, they dance around the room. <laughs> okay. Cause you're going around meeting everybody, yeah. chit chatting, all this other kind of, all this superficial bullshit, right? Yeah. All right. And then finally you sit down for the meal. But in Russian, you, first of all, they don't have the space for right. the dance. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you come in and you sit down. And I, I learned that I knew, I knew what my night was going to be like because the first thing I would do is I would count the number of bottles on the oh, table boy. because we did not leave the table until all the bottles That's... were emptied and on the floor. The Yikes. dead soldiers went on the floor. And I went, I, if I came in and I, I went, oh shit, I'm in trouble. Okay. <laughs> or, okay, this shouldn't be too bad tonight. <laughs> but yeah, I remember I watched, um, all of Anthony Bourdain's travels, mm. you know, um, on Discovery Channel. And it was always when he went to Russia, he had to like not drink for about a month or so before he went. He had to kind of like get sober and get, get healthy because he knew going over there is going to be horrible on his liver. Like just, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, that's just, they, they, from what I saw, it was you come, shake hands, sit down, eat. Drink, socialize, everything's together at the table, mm-hmm. right? Is that how? It, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and that's great. There are no mess around, no bullshit, no no dancing around the subject. Let's get down to it. <laughs> but then, but then it's it's not just uh, it's not just sitting there sipping, right. okay? Uh, everything is pretty much shots, but shots with a toast. Mm-hmm. Every everything. Is um what was it? Did they sniff the bread after they take a shot and they like smell? Oh the yeah, bread? yeah, yeah, the, yeah. I remember something like yep. that. It, like takes mm-hmm. the bite yep. off the shot or something. We sniff the bread and uh you know so so there would be bread it was like you, salt salted bread or something. Remember they put salt on their bread? Oh well, sometimes they put salt on on your hand, almost like with tequila. Oh, okay. all right. But but uh pickles. Yeah, yeah. Pickles. A, a chase of the vodka with, with pickles, cucumbers, mm. uh, vegetables, something like that, like yeah. like sliced tomato, uh, not sliced tomatoes, but s- tomato wedges, 
there was always be a chaser. I remember yeah. one time I was I was going to have this uh, an impromptu drilling meeting, and I thought, okay, I, I I went to a shop, stood in line, all right, and I got I got I got a bottle bottle of vodka, okay, and so uh, we, we we about six of us stand, uh, sitting around at a table talking drilling project business, mm-hmm. right. And so I was very proud of myself. Yeah. Right? So I reached in my bag, you know, and I said, okay, to conclude the meeting, gentlemen, and I put the bottle on the table. And there was just silence, and they're all staring at the <laughs> bottle. And then one of my friends looks at me and says, it's not enough. <laughs> and you and you don't have Where's you, don't the pickles? Have, you don't have pickles in cucumber. <laughs> Save it for another time. Yeah. And I kind of. Oh, sheepishly, you know, <laughs> took the bottle and put it back in my bag. <laughs> that was a nice gesture, though. I'm sure they appreciated it. No, I'm sure they did appreciate mm-hmm. it, but they were also teaching me a lesson. Yeah. Not, not the time or place. Yeah. Okay. okay. You know, this was just a quick business meeting mm. and, you know, and, um, you know, but the other thing is too, I only had one occasion where no matter how shit faced, uh, everybody got, everybody was friendly. No, 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 no aggression. Really? Yeah. Now, now, alcoholics out on the street. Oh. All right, you got to be really, really careful. Okay, but but only once I was having I was having um, a dinner with Tatiana and uh, and two women friends of hers and their husbands, and um, and uh, and so we we had finished the, the dinner and. Um, I had been, uh, we had finished the vodka and I was doing Deaky and Duke. Okay. We were doing shots of wild turkey. Okay. (laughs) Deaky and Duke. Okay. Uh, wild turkey. And so, man, I was, I was three sheets to the wind and Tanya had a hold of me. And, and we were outside snow up to our knees waiting for the trolley to come to take us to her apartment. Right. And, uh, and we're standing there talking and all of a sudden, and, and her, her, her husband was like, just his face was just a foot away from my face. And all of a sudden he started saying something. Okay. And I had no idea what he was saying. And all yeah. of a sudden his wife's arm came up into his chest and she just dumped him into the snowbank. <laughs> and Tatiana said, come on, let's get out of there. He was, he was starting to call you, uh, uh started to call you names. Okay. All of a sudden he just, I can't remember what it was he was calling me, but it went straight over my head. Yeah. Of course the, the, the girls knew. Yeah. All right. But that, that's the only time. Uh, that in, in the company that, uh, that I, I saw any type of aggression. Hmm. Well, that's good. Yeah, they're, they're happy drunks. Of, uh, yeah, the Koreans were pretty happy drunks too. And they didn't really want to fight. Um, Japanese but, are pretty, uh, happy drunks. Yeah. It must be just be an American testosterone. Um, now there's probably other ethnicities that want to fight too, other, other regions. Yeah. Uh, what is that, uh, down in, um, Central America. What's the place that's like super high altitude there? Um, Lima, in Peru. Peru. The Peruvian mm-hmm. festival once a year where they they air all their grievances once a year. They everybody gets super drunk and then they fight each other in the streets and people die every year. Like this is it's like one of their big festivals of the year, and they just get drunk. You, you had two old old women be out there beating the shit out of each oh, other. Jeez, but it's like a huge celebration. But they they get it all out one day. All their all their aggression, all their animosity towards this person. And so if it's you over. survive, then you're good for and the then, next year. Then it's over, and you move on. And so, 
It's one way to handle it. What, do you, what is the phrase uh, you would use when toasting in Russia? Oh, is it a long toast where they would say this is to our friendship and family and blah, you know? Um, or did, is there one thing they would stay say? Well, um, gosh, it's a good question. You've caught me off guard. Um, you know, the toast would, uh, you know, um, center around, uh, you know, friendship, mm-hmm. love, the both, okay, druzba, friendship, mm-hmm. uh, uh, brotherhood, you know, uh, brothers are Bratsk. Mm. Um, and, um, you know, the, uh, let, let me think about it. Okay. I've, I've just drawn a senior moment. I've drawn a blank <laughs> like, on, on, um, so, you know, there's like skull, there's yeah, cheers, skull. there's, you know, like a phrase you would say, and, and there's a certain way that different cultures toast yes, each other. Yes, yes, and I'm I'm trying to remember what it is. I should. I've done it a thousand times. Um, but uh, skull is used, mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of a Scandinavian mm-hmm. uh, thing. Um, if uh, if your monk really close-knit friends, you know, they would say, you know, jog them, jog them. You know, like let's let let's, let's drink, drink. Or they would, if 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 you get if you get drunk, they would, uh, or if someone is drunk, they would take their finger and flick it in underneath, uh, underneath the chin. Huh. Uh, you know, someone with three sheets to the wind. Uh, yeah, it's it's really cool to, to travel. To, uh, you know, a lot of people in South Carolina, where we are now, a lot of people I know here. I've never been outside of South Carolina. You know, their their range is for, um, Myrtle Beach. That's like as far as they'll go yeah. away from home. Uh, and I really, when I first got here, I was like, damn, man, we're missing out on so much of ever, like the, the cultural differences within our own country. There's, there's so many interesting things to see. And then if you've never been overseas to see another, even if you go to Canada, I was told that Canada is like the uh, uh, looking through a um, a prism at America. It's 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 America, but it's at a skew angle. You know, mm-hmm. you're looking at you're like, wait a second, this is, something's not right here. Mm-hmm. You get a very big sense that you're not at home anymore. You're not in America, but everything's in English. They look like Americans. Unless you go to Montreal, right? Yeah. Good luck. And then you're French. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, French Canadian. It's not. Mm-hmm. It's uh, no. It's if different. you know French, it's actually fairly Good. difficult to understand. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I went to British Columbia, mm-hmm. and when you go to Vancouver, it's just like Seattle. Mm. Oh yeah, but different. Yeah, sister cities, but different. It's really wild. <laughs> it's really yeah. Traveling uh, is really um, you know, this is why you know uh, m- most colleges you know have travel abroad mm-hmm. uh, programs. It's to expand your expand your worldview yeah. and give you perspective. But that's where that's how that's where prejudice and biases yeah. are are largely born from. It's from not knowing. Mm-hmm. Um now you can know and not like. Sure. Okay. But it's another thing to not like on the basis of having no information. Yeah. Um, yeah when I first got to Korea I was very bitter about having to be there. I did not want to go. Mm. And how many years were you in before you went to Korea? A year. I was a little over, uh, over a okay. year. Yeah. And how long were you there? Fifteen months. Wow. Um, and I was up north in the northwestern part 
Um, yeah. Basically about eight miles from the DMZ. Yeah. Up in the mountains. Uh, we covered the Moonsan Pass in the mountains, which was the main avenue of approach of the North Well, Korean you were Army. young and you were you didn't understand why you were there. Yeah, I was like, what the – this is bullshit. Yeah. These people can't – they have the largest – the fastest growing city in all the entire world, one of the largest cities in the world, one of the most technologically advanced people, but we still need to be here to help them defend their country? What is this bullshit? Like, I didn't understand geopolitics. I didn't understand why the Americans have – But now you do. Now I do. Well – there was your reason. That was your why you were there. Yeah, and I I changed about six, you know, four to six months in. Yeah, my my perspective totally changed because I I got roommate I got buddied up with a Korean soldier in uh-huh. my room. He was my roommate. They have Katusa soldiers. They're called like Korean augmentees to the United States Army. So these are Korean soldiers. They're all cons- conscripted, um, and they have to serve two years in the military. But if they're usually the wealthier families, they know English. They learn English in high school. So the, the English-speaking Koreans usually get put in the Katusa units. Um, and so, yeah, he spoke very good English. Uh, and what know, an education for you. It was priceless. Really? Just imagine if you hadn't had him as a roommate. Yeah, it would be you, ignorant. You, you could have spent 15 months. Sitting in, in the barracks playing video games. Right. And drinking and acting stupid. I still drank and acted stupid, for sure. Yeah, well, but, we all did. Well, I do. Mm-hmm. I'm prone to that, too. <laughs> this guy, you know, we're, we're, we would say, hey, hey Kim, uh, can we, will you take us to Seoul and show us around? And he's like, yeah. He was super excited. And we'd go, like, way far away from, wow. you know, hours by train That's to cool. get down to the southern part of Seoul. And, and he showed us how different northern Seoul is from central, from southern. Mm-hmm. And, um, and when it came time for me to leave, you know, I had tears in my eyes because he came up to me. I, I had this, we had that, we were drinking in the barracks and we had that, we had it out one night and I just let loose like, why the fuck am I here, man? Like what? Well, this is such bullshit. We don't need to be here. You guys should defend yourselves, take care of yourselves and all that kind of stuff, which I still kind of believe that. Um, but when, and then he just sat and listened. He didn't argue with me. He just sat and listened. And then the day I was leaving, he came up to me and gave me a hug and he said, thank you for helping me defend my country. And, uh, man, I just cried. <laughs> yeah. I, I, it was just, you know, what's well, the oriental way not to, not to argue. Yeah. Um, one of the thing lessons that I had to learn working with the Japanese and Russian, um, scientists in the mm-hmm. drilling project was I was working with this, uh, one Japanese very closely, uh, Takeyoshi Kawai. And, and, um, and and I, and I I had a point to make. We mm-hmm. we were we were talking about drilling sites before. Mm-hmm. How do you choose that you know to where to drill? Yeah. Well, based on our evidence, you know, uh, you know, we the American side wanted to drill at this location. Mm-hmm. Well, the Japanese, for whatever you know, because they were they were partners in this thing, they wanted to drill at another site. Yeah. And and we and the Russians and we we were trying to we were digging our heels in a little bit. Um, and Kawhi kept saying, um, uh, to my arguments, yeah, I, I understand. Mm. I understand. Um, and as an American, I was interpreting that to, I agree. No, that's not what he was saying. He was saying he understood. But what I didn't know was, all right, he couldn't, he couldn't agree to, uh, what I, my, our, our position mm-hmm. until he, he went back. He went back home, not yeah. actually go home, but call home or communicate mm-hmm. home to whatever scientists, scientific committee or whatever, 
All right. So he understood, but it didn't mean agreement because he had to check with his constituents back in Japan. And as it turns out, in this case, it ended up being a falling out between uh, Kawaii-san and myself because, uh, well, we had two-thirds of the majority. And for this one drilling season, uh, he didn't get his choice. He got it. He got it later on. Yeah. And not much came out of it. But uh, they they were they were the ones that wanted to study those uh, methane hydrates oh, that I okay. was talking about mm-hmm. before. We weren't all that interested in it, and um, but um, yeah. So you know, the 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 Oriental approach to problem solving yeah. is different than us. It is different, um, and that's totally fine. Some people might, oh, it's bullshit, they're passive, and they're not, you know, no, that's not really it. Mm-hmm. They're just no. come to the conclusion through a different route. Yeah. Did What about the indigenous peoples of um, Siberia? Did you I, have any interactions with them? Not, not really. Um, I know I know intellectually, you know, about the Yakuts, the Chukchis, well, the, yeah. the Russians. Uh, back in the day, you know, uh, Americans used to tell, you know, jokes about Poles. Oh, you know, okay. how, you know how many poles does it take to screw in a light right. bulb? That kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, the Russians had the equivalent. They're called the Chukchis. Wow. The Chukchis that live way up in the far uh, north uh, northeast, mm. just across. Uh, yeah, they're the it, ones across the Bering Strait. Yeah, right across the Bering Straits. Okay, and so the Russians would have uh, Chukchi jokes. Okay, okay, for some strange reason, but um, I never really when we did the Lena River expedition mm-hmm. through Siberia. Um, we we went to Yakutsk. Uh, I interacted with uh, someone that was Yakut. Mm-hmm. Uh, was the director of one of the museums there. Okay, but um, and when we stopped at the little villages and things, um, but th- there wasn't a lot of. Uh, I, I I didn't get a chance to go to like a a, a reindeer yeah. uh, herd area and stuff like that. Okay. Um. Was there any sort of cultural consideration, like, you know, with the indigenous populations, considerations about traveling up into their region, up these rivers and that sort of thing? Or the Russians were just like, yeah, fuck those guys. We're going to do yeah, what we want. <laughs> Full steam ahead. Yeah. <laughs> Charge ahead. Uh, yeah. No, it was all just uh, all about the science. Yeah. Yeah. There, there was uh, – now, when we did um, – now, having said that, though, uh, moment of time in 2000 – we uh, we interacted with the Buryats, uh, duh. You see, dredging up memories, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and, um, and and we went to um, uh, a sh- a sh- well, we interacted with a shaman ceremony. Oh, cool! I was I was presented with the ceremonial uh, ram's head. Wow! I mean, they, they they sacrificed. We went through the whole ceremony, mm. sacrificing a ram. Um, Any funny the, herbs and, or mushrooms or and, anything? And, well, now? at the time, I was I was a vegetarian, oh. and they were presenting me with the ram's head, and I was supposed to eat. I was supposed to eat some of the brain. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> but um, I, um, my uh, colleague, ended up uh, saving me. That's good. <laughs> Probably saved you from getting some sort of uh, intestinal parasite too. <laughs> oh, well, listen, I've I've had uh, I, I've had a raw deer liver. Mm. Um, this was before I was a vegetarian, um, fro- frozen, frozen, frozen raw deer, yeah. deer liver. Yeah. It was just something sliced up and mm-hmm. ate. 
With vodka, probably. <laughs> With vodka. <laughs> but, you know, that's why when I, when I read Frazier's book, yeah. going all the way through from St. Petersburg to Vladivostok, okay, I've done that, right, mm-hmm. in, in, in a different way, okay? And I kept waiting to hear about when, when yeah, and so we had some vodka, we yeah, had some never... vodka, we had, and they drank so much tea. Tea, Okay, yeah, yeah I, I had a bit of tea, right. but but when, when I came back, I, I joked with people, I said, yeah, and in, in, in the, the work that I did inside in Russia, okay, I've, I personally have consumed uh, a tanker <laughs> volume of vodka because everything was sealed with toast. So yeah. Dinners form, you know, the only thing, and, and, and sometimes very embarrassingly, okay, but what really killed me was uh, Chinese vodka. Oh, oh my gosh. Oh, and then I was out. That reminds me. We have a, a well, go ahead, finish your story. I, I was out, I was out on Lake Baikal and went, went into the galley one night and mm-hmm. some of the Russian students were in there. Okay. And they were doing shots of grain alcohol. <laughs> Talk about something to fry your brain. Oh, yeah. Well, they didn't have any vodka. So yeah. they were doing, I had own. a few shots with them too. Mm-hmm. Okay. But shots of grain alcohol, talk about destroying your brain. Oh, yeah. So th- this is a, a big problem in Russia. And and, and I, I, I can't imagine these Russian troops down in Ukraine that, that aren't shit-faced half the time. No, they probably are. On grain alcohol. Yeah. Or drinking anyway, their, um, the fuel it's, out it's, of their it's, uh, it's tanks. A real, it's a real problem. <laughs> All right. We're going to take one more break. Okay. And I have to – I'm going to – I'm going to – we have a tradition on the show. We call it our bottle of communism. It's a Chinese, <laughs> the bottle of Chinese liquor that you have to take a drink out of. Um, I totally forgot about it the first time you were here. Okay. So, uh, Mike, put in another commercial here, maybe. Um, R.I.P. in peace, Mike. And, um, yeah, we'll be right back. The Swamp Fox Podcast Network is proud to announce our new sponsor, the Swamp Log Artisans Gallery. An old Bishopville building is a home to a store unlike any you have ever experienced. Gift shop, furniture store, local history museum, and art gallery. It's all of these things. There's an inventory here found nowhere else. Presented with an opportunity to make a personal connection to heirloom quality pieces that will honor our heritage and enrich your family's lives for generations to come. Here you will carefully select your pieces created by 60 fine woodworkers, artisans, and artists. The backbone of our store is products handmade from lumber, which is sawn from old-growth sinker logs recovered from the muddy, dark bottoms of South Carolina's rivers and swamps. These logs were lost over 125 years ago as they were transported on the waterways and were recovered with scuba equipment. Check them out at www.swamplogartisans.com or visit them at 229 North Main Street in downtown Bishopville, South Carolina. Yeah, man. I'm super excited about the uh, kiln-dried lumber. Mm-hmm. You just buy the rough-cut yeah. slabs. Yeah. And also the paintings. Mm-hmm. Um, the no, they've got some really cool stuff. I want to see that. I mean, it's just beautiful framework. And from looking at this brochure, some pretty nice art. Uh, I might go out there today. Are they open today? Yeah. Awesome. So I would love it for Swamp uh, the Swamp Fox Network people to uh, support this company and just let them know where you heard about it. And we're back. So I went to that commercial break thinking Mike was going to edit and fix my screw-ups, but I forgot that Mike moved to Texas and he is no longer with us. And that's why I said RIP in peace. Um all right, before we left, we talked about this bottle of communism that we have, the tradition of drinking, <laughs> you know, um, 
So let it rip, Dr. Doug. Well, looking at the label here, well, of course, <laughs> I can't understand the Chinese characters here. Hmm. But way up at the top, it says Jiao Lang Liquor mm-hmm. Liqueur. Sounds, but it smells nasty. Yeah. Okay, here it goes. Communism Nothing. is nasty. Yeah, definitely nasty. <laughs> um, yeah, you can taste the alcohol. Oh yeah. What other? Yeah, it's got some other. I forget what he said was in there. In some, it. There was it was something that they make gin out of some kind of hmm. fruit roadside uh, bush or something. Well, they, we'll definitely <laughs> have to do some Russian vodka. I've got, yeah. I've got um, some that has been sitting at home aging. Oh, okay. And it's it's good stuff. Um, we do a Rus- good Russian vodka is really good. We do a we call it Kershaw Kershaw County After Dark episode every once in a while hmm. where we'll we'll line up about five bottles of scotch or bourbon or whatever and we'll compare and do a little tasting hmm. and do more tasting and more tasting. Let's do a Russian vodka one. Yeah, absolutely. I would love that. Huh. And um because you know, if you go to a local liquor store here, you can't really get good vodka uh around where I live, it's just like yeah, well, Grey you, Goose is the best. Probably. Yeah, well, you yeah. know, even Stoli, you know, the Russians will turn their used to turn mm. their nose up at Stoli. Wow. You know, um, you know, we used to like, whoa, that's the pinnacle of Russian vodka. Right. But um, and and I I had so much vodka, and it can make me sound like an alcoholic here. <laughs> but I I could distinguish, you know, really, yeah, oh yeah, and like I guess the same with bourbons. You know, if you're yeah. if you're not a, a regular bourbon drinker, it's just so all tastes the same. But, and, yeah. You know, I heard that the key test is is drinking it and it has zero aftertaste. That's like a good vodka if it doesn't like no burn, no aftertaste type of mm-hmm. thing. Um, yeah, well, I've got some that just been sitting and uh, waiting to, for an excuse. Hey, you got one now. Yeah. <laughs> we'll do our pickles and we'll do a full Russian evening. That'd be fun. I've even got a whole set of... Uh, Shot glasses that I bought way, way back um, because when I would entertain the Russians, I needed to have good shot glasses. Something (laughs) just popped into my head. Nostrovia. Nostrovia. Is that what they would say when they were cheering? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I got it. Yes, (laughs) Nostrovia. Yeah. I took my vitamins today, so my brain is- Thank you. Thank you for- Man, it- I, I hate that one. It's just something. Oh, you, yeah, you, it's like second nature to me, or used mm-hmm. to be anyway. Yeah, Nazdorovia, yeah. which is to your health. Okay, that's it. Okay, cool. So we'll we'll have us ourselves a, a fun night. Nazdorovia night. Yeah. Um, <laughs> one last thing about Lake Baikal and your studies over there: the environmental changes that were, that was it more? Did you see more of a cyclical change, um, or compared to man-made change in the environment there? Well, when we went up the Angara uh, for the Angara expedition up the Bratsk, I mean, you, you could see the environmental degradation. I couldn't believe there were people actually on the shore with kids swimming. We went by one place like where industrial waste. Or there, there was there was a yeah. plume of chlorine gas. Oh my god, coming out. Yeah, we we had to slam all the windows uh, shut when we went through this. But in Lake Baikal. There's, uh, it, it's surrounded with wilderness. Okay. So you've got Lisvianka, a little village. So there's a little effluent coming in there, mostly, you know, probably sewage related. Mm-hmm. Um, but then across the way, there was a pulp mill, uh, near the Salanga Delta. Mm-hmm. And that was the focus of 
of a of that was really the birth of the environmental movement in uh for what it's worth uh, or was worth uh was fledgling uh in the Soviet Union mm-hmm. was to uh, shut down that that uh, paper mill mm-hmm. over in um um I can't remember the name of it something Baikalsk down there yeah. And I actually visited it one time, and it's nothing like compared to what we have. Yeah, we have down the road here a paper mill. Oh, um, no kidding. Well, down way down the road. Oh, okay. But um, down east over. You know where that is? Oh, we, oh sure. I'm okay. Sorry. Um, but they're they're all self-contained. It's one of the most environmentally friendly, yeah. mm-hmm. um, energy efficient. So they they recycle. Their whole process goes all the way to the end. And That's why I never even made the connection. Whatever's left over. It starts over. It starts again. They use the the leavings, the the, the, yeah. the, the for fuel to burn again, and they awesome. don't burn any coal. They burn bark off the trees. Yeah, the one down in Georgetown sure didn't. Yeah. I, I don't know what it's like now because now you got to realize it's been you know that I was doing my study with the students down there in mm. the nineteen nineties. Yeah. No idea. Now this plant actually generates its own power too, and it generates so much power that it uh, they sell it to cool. Duke Energy, I think, or uh, but it has hmm. cl- water. Awesome. Filtrates that cleans all the water goes. They take water from the watery river, use it for their process, clean it, and it's actually cleaner when they put it back in the water than when they took it out. Awesome. Um, so that's a, the man-made pollution in Russia must be a magnitude of a, a million times worse than the well, United States. When you were talking right. before about Frazier's book about yeah. the the trash and things, mm-hmm. um, and he does talk about the industrial areas too. How it's yeah, horrible. yeah, um, but. Uh, Irkutsk has a sizable aluminum plant. Now, Bratsk is downstream, mm-hmm. so that doesn't come into um, – so the air quality in and around Lake Baikal is very good. The water quality, the the lake. Um, it's kind of its own little um, environment, environmental area, right, where it's kind of self-contained. It's, it's yeah, really – Yeah, well, it's a UNESCO heritage site too. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so it's uh, – at least the last time I was there, back in 2003, it's, it's in great shape. When did Putin come to power? Putin came to power, let me see, 91, they had the coup. Um, uh, Yeltsin was the premier after Gorbachev. Mm-hmm. Putin came in around 93, I think, yeah. and was regarded as you know, the guy who was really going to help Transform the democracy yeah. into you know um, you know in, into a viable economy. You know they invited him into the G seven, mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. UN Security Council, and um, you know, but he was former KGB. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I forget what they call it now. It's not the KGB. It's the GRU. No, yeah. maybe it is. It's GRU. something like that. GRU. Yeah. I think you might. Be um, right. Now he's pretty much a czar now, right? He's kind of. Oh yeah. Got rid of the, the democratic process. That he's, oh, it's, he's the prime minister. He created the prime minister position and then put himself in it. He's whatever then, he is for life. Yeah, or there thereabouts. That's wild. <laughs> that man's crazy. But you know something about there's something about him and Russia now that uh, you know they went back on the gold standard. Uh, if you want to buy oil for them, you have to change your money into rubles. They have one of the they're they're. The value of their 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 value of the ruble has skyrocketed. Um, the um, he's an enemy of the uh, quote new world order. That he's not playing by their rules. By the you know the 
the bankers rules, which I think Russia has always had a trouble with that. Like not, we're going to do the Russian thing and, and don't come The in Russian here. economy is the size of Texas. You think so? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. It's, it's a, like the tail wagging the dog. Yeah. Right now. Okay. So you think it's going to collapse? Yeah, and I and, saw that statistic or I heard that statistic within the last month or so. Who's going to collapse so, first? Uh, the United States or Russia? Or what? <laughs> who's going to collapse first? Our, our economy is going to crash first. Yeah, let's not go there. <laughs> We'll save that for another podcast. We'll save that for the uh, Nostrovia. <laughs> yeah. No, that's going to be a happy night. Right, I'm going to go. Um, so you started writing a book years ago, and you gave me the uh, manuscripts, part one and two. Yeah. And then you stopped writing. But um, I think you're going to start again. I just have a feeling you're going to finish it. Well, um, it has to it has to take a different form. When I, um, As part of this uh, meeting you and coming mm-hmm. up here, and like I said, you know, it's been I've been excavating, mm-hmm. and in part of the excavation, it's not that I forgot about it, but when I looked at the manuscript that I started writing, you know, I had a vision for the book. Mm-hmm. You know, I was I was actually, I, you know, I have in there, and I have no recollection of saying, yeah, I was going to have, uh, you know, uh, John King write a, a book on paleomagnetism, you know, um, Chris Schultz write about the geophysics and. Yada yada, and Bezrukovet to write about the pollen and Christianity. Yada yada yada. And I'm, I'm reading this and I'm going, oh. I obviously had a plan, mm-hmm. and obviously, you, you know why I stopped. Hmm. I stopped because you know it was the part one, part two. Yeah. One of the things that I noticed in uh, when I was traveling in Russia is maybe it's just me, but I thought in a. Uh, an Americanism is the use of idioms. Okay. Where it's like, uh, you know, like expressions that we just completely take for granted. Yeah. Um, and when I was in Russia, like, I'll never forget the, the, the winter that the drilling project was not a success. We were sitting in this rustic cabin. It was like a, a rustic dormitory way yeah. in Severobaikalsk, all the way up to the northern part of Lake Baikal. Mm-hmm. It was late at night. We had had dinner. Uh, we, we were dr- had, drinking, obviously, and we were, we were playing, uh, we were sitting around talking and, um, um, I can, now I can't remember the, the artist, uh, country western artist, but know when to hold them. Oh, yeah. Know when to fold them. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, that seemed appropriate for me to throw out there. In was a that mixed, Kenny Rogers? Yeah, Kenny Rogers in mixed company. Yeah. Uh, a Russian. And, I had no and, idea what and, you're talking about. And yeah, well, uh, Paul Hearn, who was the fluent in Russian, mm-hmm. uh, USGS guy, okay. And he looked at me, he said, Doug, he said, they have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah. But it was appropriate. So anyway, so when I was writing the book, starting to draft the book, mm-hmm. um, I don't know if you ever noticed uh, italics in there. And so the other one, I actually started a whole glossary where I was then looking up the origins oh. of all of these idioms. <laughs> huh. Okay. Yeah. Um, and anyway, the whole thing just got – I was sitting at home, spot on sabbatical, mm-hmm. in the room of my garage, working on this in a vacuum. Yeah. And it just became – you need an editor. Two, That's what, yes, I yeah, did. Yeah. Uh, and I actually, uh, I actually, what what I loaned you, I actually gave to the, the 
my I was associate dean of the Honors College. Mm-hmm. I gave it to the dean, Peter Cedarberg, late Peter Cedarberg, unfortunately. I gave a copy to Karabanov uh, to read and give me advice on. And mm-hmm. I don't know. It was uh, – I gave it to one other individual and uh, and I just ran out of gas. It was yeah. like it was becoming too personal. Uh, okay. Um, so – Maybe there's two different books in there. Well, now, now that as part of this excavation process that mm-hmm. you have uh, instigated um, – you know, I'm now thinking that maybe what I should write is, you know, I was talking about the metaphor of, uh, you know, the Baikal drilling project as the trunk and, mm-hmm. you know, Berg yeah. reset, you know, moment in time. And then the Angara expedition as may, may, maybe that's if I'm going to write a book. Yeah. Uh, may, maybe that's what I need. You ever right. tried doing a vision board or um, any sort of like a brainstorming wall or something like that? Where not yet. I mean, yeah. this, is, this is that that whole thing that I just laid out for you right now is you know off the seat of my pants. Okay. Just uh, yeah. so the answer to your question is no. Okay. Well, yeah, I used to when I was writing. You know, I just have an associate's degree. Well, not just. I have an associate's degree in management. Right. Um. I, I went to school full time. Dad worked full time, but I went. I got two degrees, one in management, one in marketing. Awesome. Um, and I found out that my my passion wasn't in my core curriculum that I was taking for management or marketing. I was, actually, that was tedious and boring to me. What I really loved doing was writing critical essays about art or hmm. uh, in different forms of art or, you know, different stories, short stories especially. I love mm-hmm. reading short stories and, and writing essays about it. Um and how it, those stories could correlate to my life or other people's lives. Uh, but what I used to do is is have a notebook and I would just write down one line thoughts, write down all my thoughts. Mm-hmm. And I would have page a couple pages, you know, and then I would go through and be like, well, this doesn't have anything to do with what I want to talk about. This was around and I cross it out, you know, and I would get basically eliminate mm-hmm. uh, kind of like how you came up with, uh, we talked in the last show, like the, the ideas of what you want to do. And then you eliminated some and, um, narrowed it down to like five, you know, core ideas. So I, I, that's what I kind of used to do. That was my little process. But, mm-hmm. um, and I, I, obviously I'm not published. I don't have, you know, I did good in school. I, you know, I got good grades. And my, one of my professors, one of my teachers said, he was like, man, you ever thought about going into journalism? Like you should maybe oh. think about changing, you know. Interesting. And I was like, no, man, I got miles to feed at home. I need to. I need a way. And then I'm now I'm sitting here doing. Yeah. Whether you put a label journalism on it or not, it's it's independent journalism. Yeah. 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 I just don't have a boss. (laughs) You know, I can say whatever I want. Yeah. Um. You know, the sponsors are cool, but I don't need them. Everything you see before you paid, I paid cash for out of my own pocket. Yeah. Except for that Chinese communism in a bottle. Yeah. (laughs) Don't worry, I left left some for somebody else. Uh, and so I think hopefully you've been a little bit reinvigorated because I want to read your book. Hmm. You know, Thank I want, you. I want to read it. I, I think, uh, just, well, the way we met the conversation that we've had the last episode, you know, we were last episode we were, we were very excited to have you here. Caitlin was very excited. We were, but we were like, holy crap, yeah. I can't believe this guy we met in Savannah. I actually agreed to come out here to the middle of nowhere in the woods to to do a podcast to the undisclosed location, undisclosed location. <laughs> no less. Yeah, 
And On it, the pain of death, I will not reveal it. Thank you. Um, and it, it's it's really amazing how it all came together. And it is. Uh, I told Mike over the phone, I was talking to him, and I said, man, I think this series that, you know, we had a lawyer on who just had a successful lawsuit against the sheriff of our county. And it was a, a big a big deal for accountability for law enforcement in this area. It's, it's a big deal. Um, and then now you coming on, I think this is a, a really a turning point in our show. Like it's going to be tough to follow up these last three shows. Like, mm. but we really got to mm. bring, you know, keep bringing the heat. So, <laughs> um, compliment. well, you're very welcome. Um, yeah, the, well, so, you know, um, I don't know. You, you have, uh, you know, things happen for a reason mm-hmm. and, um, and I, I, I like to write. I mean, I'll, I'll be somewhere. I've also written over 200 poems. Oh, I, I have okay. a whole collection of poems. Put those written. in there, like at the beginning of the chapters. Oh, you what? Put them at the beginning of the chapters. Open each chapter with a poem. Well, but you know, a lot of a lot of the poems are. Um, I mean, I'm even even my cell phone. Mm-hmm. I, I send my I send the poems to myself. Okay. You know, as you know, so I I like to write mm-hmm. uh, I, ideas. Uh, I used to say, you know, uh, my mind never shuts down. Man, it's just always, what you talking about? I know that. <laughs> always going. You know? It's a burden almost, right? It, it, it is. You know, <laughs> there's no switch to mm. turn it off. It's just and different so speeds. as these, so now as these th- thoughts come through my head, sometimes you know, all of a sudden, you know, uh, literally uh, the verse will pop, be uh, pop into my head, mm-hmm. and and and. So next thing I know, I'm sitting in my cell phone and I'm a pecker. So mm-hmm. I'm pecking in, you know, and I, I send it to myself and then mm-hmm. no one ever sees it. And uh, so I don't Not know. Yet. It's been It's been nice excavating this with you. Yeah. Now awesome. I've got to figure out whether I, I have the time. So I can't I can't say, well, I don't have the time. Mm. I, am a, I am busy, but I do have the time. I've just got to hold yourself accountable. Yeah, but then a guy, you know, <laughs> set a goal, man. Just set a goal and yeah, go for it. But then I, I don't know whether it's worth it. I mean, you know, what? What's? It's not about cares? the destination. It's about the journey, right, Doug? And that, oh yes, the journey is the destination. I know. I wrote a poem about that too. <laughs> from from the Zen. Yeah. 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 Yeah, because sometimes the the destination is disappointing. Absolutely. Yeah. But it doesn't even matter. You know, it's like our trip. I wanted to go to California after high school. I said, well, I want to go to California. I'm going to drive Route 66 to California. Mm-hmm. I had zero plans, nothing. I'm going to point my this van west and go. Mm-hmm. And, man, I saw Amarillo, Texas. It's a beautiful, like, beautiful part of our country. I never knew. You just it's think, eh, it's like a little desert town or something. Oh, yeah. Beautiful. Uh, so West Barstow. Texas is beautiful yeah. with the – yeah. The Caspian Basin, the geology yeah. out there is absolutely awesome. I saw the Lowell Observatory wow. where Mars was discovered. You know, it's like, I, I didn't know. I, we were just driving through and I was like, Lowell Observatory, what the hell? We have to go. And that's, or the, the meteor crater. Um, we, we made a special trip down to see that. Yeah. See, there's um, a lot of the U.S. I need to see too. It's just amazing. And, yeah. you know, a lot of it is the same strip mall over and over, just different trees, you know, like different <laughs> you know, sometimes you see palm trees, sometimes you see oak trees, sometimes crepe myrtles, but the same shit, that, that kind of shit doesn't interest me. Hmm. Uh, I want to go to the, see other stuff, the real yeah. stuff. Um, <clears throat> but when I got to California, I was like, mm, 
this place kind of sucks. <laughs> you know, I want to go back to Baker and Barstow. Right. I want to go back to in between LA and Vegas. Like what's it, that desert there that, you know, mm-hmm. Northern Nevada, once you get out past Reno and it's like, Whoa, this place is a totally different planet. You know, the great salt Lake, beautiful. It's so amazing to see yeah. it. It's in trouble now. Is it? Yeah. Big time. Hmm. Yeah. It's, it's evaporating. Really? Yeah. Cause so much, you know, we were talking about the water going into Lake Baikal. Yeah. <clears throat> then one exit. The uh, there's a, a lot of uh, for uh, residential agriculture um, siphoning off a lot of water. So they're and siphoning water from that that normally flows the into the lake. Yeah. And what's happening? I, I Is it extending the, the Bonneville the, salt flats? Like no, make, no, no, no. The sh- shrinkage of um, I was just reading an article in the New York Times just uh, a couple of days ago. I wished I had saved it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if I had known you were going to mention it, I would have brought the article up to you about how um, – and, and what they're worried about is with this desiccation that's drying mm-hmm. up, uh, there's arsenic in the salts yeah. in the bottom and things. And so if they get – uh, continued drying and then they'll have a big die off of well, fish. Right? Well, no windstorms and Ooh, all this stuff getting blowing airborne. arsenic in the damn yeah, like toxic windstorms. And human beings really are parasites on this earth, aren't we're, they? We're, we're like a virus. We're a geological force. So, do you believe in that? There's man-made climate change. Do you think that we're we have that much of an impact to change the atmosphere, the the environment, the the oceans, the, all that. Well, you know, uh, I, I'm an empiricist. You know, I you want to look at the data. I, I, I look at the data. Mm-hmm. All right. So, if I go back to uh, Charles Keeling, had this crazy idea of putting um, an observatory up in Mauna Loa in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, mm-hmm. as far away from the industrial. I'd love to go see. All right, that. and. Um, you know, I'm measuring the carbon dioxide content of the atmosphere. And so you look at it from 1970 and you notice that it has this cycle, goes up and down and mm. up and down and up and down. And what it's showing is the earth breathing. Mm-hmm. Okay. As the northern hemisphere, where most of the land mass is, comes into the spring and summer and the vegetation grows, the carbon dioxide goes down. Sure. And then as the, the winter, with the change in the orbit, uh, you know, it, uh, it then goes down. So there's this annual cycle going up mm-hmm. and down. And then if you look at it from 1970 on, okay, it just steadily continues to increase where it's like, 150 parts per million higher than it was back in 1970. Wow. There's no... 150 ge- parts per million just from my... There's no geological... Well, it, it's 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 at like... it's. I think it just crossed over 400. Oh. So, if... If, if your house had 400 parts per million carbon, does, carbon dioxide in it compared... In the air, that would be considered a toxic environment in the, inside a closed room right I'm, I'm not i'm not sure about uh, that but i think the, the thing is is that over a short period of time you know we've changed extremely short period we've of time changed the chemistry of the atmosphere 
And so, <laughs> so there's 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 no geological mechanism for it. There's nothing. You and could- then and then, if you believe the ice core records, what's really cool about ice core records is is uh, as the ice forms, it actually traps bubbles. Right. Of the atmosphere at that time, mm-hmm. okay, and you count these suckers back, okay, and you know, and in this core you get a hundred thousand, and they're they're annual, mm-hmm. and then you go back further and you get two count two hundred thousand, five hundred thousand, okay, and you can actually sample, and they've got Zorch machines that can actually determine the concentration of carbon dioxide. Back through time, do you feel like um, it's pretty cool? Humans are just contributing to this cycle, this natural cycle of the Earth that we're just kind of helping we're, it along. We're past the natural part. Are we? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So what's the no, answer? So, so we need we need you, a meteor to hit us. I so <laughs> uh, be careful what you wish. Yeah. Um, <laughs> We've so talked about if that. Look at the geological cycle. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, if you look at the geological cycle, which is the geological cycle, which is what I used to do, yeah, okay, yeah. Are, all right, we should be going into a glacial period. Well, we were supposed to go into Ice Age back in the 70s too, right? Well, I'm, I'm just saying not the 70s. I'm just saying no. that, 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 that we should – the Earth should actually be cooling mm. geologically. Okay. Okay. But, but uh, with our input over the – over the last 5,000 years and then with the Industrial Revolution, yeah. we've changed the chemistry of the atmosphere so that it's almost competing with the geological cycle that's driven by by driven by the Earth's orbit uh-huh. with the sun. It goes through long period cycles uh-huh. on 100,000, okay, 40,000 years and then there's a 20,000-year cycle or 17,000-year yeah. cycle. And the Earth has been been getting cooler mm-hmm. and glacial and interglacial, glacial, interglacial, going back every 100,000 years, this cycle has been going on. Mm-hmm. And so right now in the last 10,000 years, all right, we've been in the interglacial warm part of the cycle. Mm-hmm. And geologically, the mathematical mo- modeling this thing, okay, we should be cooling, but we're not. Mm. It's actually, the atmosphere is actually warming. Uh, and it's like, uh, <laughs> so, it's called a tipping point as to whether or not, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, in some ways, the, the, the earth could snap into an ice age. Right. So when I say snap, it's also a geological thing. It's not going to happen between now yeah. and 2050. We won't be here. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, hopefully we're here in 2050. No, I don't know. But how are we doing with our outline? We're good. We're good. Yeah. Okay. Because um, that question, you know, the environmental changes that you saw throughout your, you know, with your studies. Yeah. Um, and then maybe just talking amongst colleagues who are drilling in Antarctica or drilling in other places. Do you all compare data? With each oh, other, yeah. and you would say, you found that in our Antarctica. I'm seeing something totally different, and like Baikal, so-and-so is so many different in the Himalayas, but – or something similar. Well, well, you know you know what's pretty cool um, is um, 
the, the, the basic pattern in Lake Baikal looks very, very similar to the basic pattern of glacial interglacial changes we see okay. for the last million years in the oceans. But one of the other things that we looked at was um, we talked about isotopes of carbon before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, there are three isotopes. There's the radioactive isotope, radiocarbon. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there are two stable ones, okay, carbon-13 and carbon-12. And um, this ratio, okay, um, is very different in uh, methane mm-hmm. than it is in, uh, in uh, say, grass or very different in plankton hmm. and things. And so I, I, I can't remember now, sorry, senior moment. I can't remember how we got the idea to actually look at the carbon isotopic ratio of the carbon Mm-hmm. in the Lake Baikal sediments. But it undergoes these huge swings. Yeah. Okay. It's almost it, by design, huh? Like not, everything's together. Not, and... not by design, although <laughs> we could talk about that at another time. Yeah. Um, but uh, almost looking like injections of methane huh. uh, by maybe warming and cooling of permafrost. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Now – I'm so not that, I'm not studying that anymore, but yeah. I mentioned Alexander Prokopenko, mm-hmm. and I was in the process of uh, of looking him up and tracking. I've lost he and I've lost track of one one another. Do you know how to spell his last name? Pro P R O Alexander. Yeah, and it's a- actually it's Alexander A because his patronymic is Alexandrovich. Okay, so his father's name is is Alexander too. Alexander. A Prokovich. Uh, Proko, P R O K O, Pen, P E N K O. Proko Penko. Got it. Proko Penko. And do they spell Alexander differently? E L E X A N D E R? No, that's right. It may be an A R, but I think it's okay. E R. All right. Anyway, he, he's, he has some publications. A couple of them, my name is on it. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm brain dead on I don't even have a copy of them. We need um, vodka. That would jog your brain. But um, anyway, that that I think – I remember being really excited about it at the time. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how far uh, Sasha um, uh, has carried it. So as, and as scientists, when you, when you have these findings and you say, whoa, something's not right here over the last 10,000 years. Something's not falling into the normal cycle. Is that as far as you go? Is like, okay, let, well, let's figure out what happened. Oh, do you look? No, is, that, are there futurologists like people who say, "Here's how we can fix it. Here's, you know, based off your data, here's what we need to change." Is that oh more envir- environmentalists would think about that, or? Um. Well, you, your your question had a couple parts to it. Yeah. One is, um. Okay, we have a view of the world. So, as a scientist, I, I may I may get an idea, and I think. Uh, I think that maybe based on what I know, I, I might infer, okay, which is uh, an estimate mm-hmm. that that this is what we're going to find. And sometimes we we, we find uh, I find what uh, I kind of expected. Okay, so that or if I compare it to what others have done, and mm-hmm. then it looks like okay, that looks like my my worldview. Okay, but what we're really look what I'm really looking for is something that doesn't agree with an my worldview. Yeah. An anomaly. Because that's where that's where understanding 
what was it human error? Mm-hmm. Was it instrumental error? Or is there something really going on here yeah. that we do, that we didn't know about? Yeah. And and that's that that's what when I first saw the carbon isotope record, I went, whoa, wait a minute. What's what's going on here? Because if we can get a handle on uh, and and see, but this was, uh, Sasha and I ended up having a falling out over another professional issue, and I've lost touch. And then I retired from the mm-hmm. university. Well, retired. I went on to my blue marble science stuff, yeah. but I stopped doing. Uh, it wasn't that I was out of ideas. I just um, moved on. I, I, yeah, I moved New on. chapter. Yeah. Yeah. I had, I had uh, remember my agenda? Mm. I had a different agenda. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. It happens. I wanted That's, to go into elementary schools. So. Yeah. And that brings us into the next topic on my list here, naturally. <laughs> yeah. Uh, with Blue Marble Science, but the idea for that. And let's explain what it is. We did, we talked a little bit about it in the last show. So, and you talked about in Sumter and, um, you know, the schools that you would go to. and uh, But where did you come up with the idea for this Blue Marble Science? Well, um, I got a grant. Uh, I became resident scientist at Adventure mm-hmm. Children's Museum. And I got a grant from the National Science Foundation to translate what I was doing as a scientist um, to uh, the public. And so at Adventure, I was putting together scientific programs working with students at the university and the honors college. And uh, I would find that I would have an audience. I would have, I would have toddlers and grandmothers. Mm-hmm. All right. We're in the spectrum. And so somehow I had to translate this. And the yeah. director of the museum uh, at the time said to me, y- you have a knack. And I said, hmm. Um, and so, in the meantime, you know, the state of South Carolina educational system was always being trashed in in, in the papers, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, it is in the bottom in the country. You it's know, one of the, and so yeah. um, I realized that I, I, I liked uh, translating things in an understandable, hands-on, and I thought exciting way, enjoyable. You've fun, done a good exci- job explaining stuff to me. I- exciting like, way, I right? I have no idea. So uh, I presented – um, I presented a vision mm-hmm. for what I called uh, I didn't I didn't have a name for it, but I presented a vision to Adventure to go into schools, mm-hmm. Doctor Doug, and put on hands-on scientific, um, uh, basically n- not experiments but programs. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had a quote a supervisor at that time, <laughs> and uh, an ex uh, principal. <laughs> And she came to me the next day. I, I gave her a draft, kind of like the draft of the book that yeah. I that I, I. It's not polished, and I gave right. it to you to take a look at. And I gave it to her. She came back the next day. She said she handed it back to me. She said, "I I have no idea what this is. <laughs> uh, I couldn't I, I couldn't explain this to a principal. So you only work twenty hours a week for us. So this is what I want you to do. Here's a time card. <laughs> Ew. <laughs> I've never had a time card. Okay." All right. Uh, and uh, I, I only want you to do – I know you've been working a lot on this. I could tell. But uh, 20 hours a week, all right, and uh, these are the things I want you to do. And I said, okay. I went home, told my wife, 
She said, look, uh, give, them their, give them their 20 hours mm-hmm. and you continue working on your vision. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, I was putting in, I was putting in 60 extra hours sure. a week working on this thing, right? And then two weeks before uh, I turned in my two-week notice, they were shocked. <gasps> you're, what? You're leaving us? I said, yeah, yeah, yep. I've been really great. Thank you so much for the opportunity. And uh, two weeks went up. I locked the office. Mm. Didn't let the doorknob hit me in the ass. All right. And uh, launched a website, uh, and uh, which is still the same original website. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, formed – and I had a, an honest college student who – uh, Crystal Weber, <sighs> wow! I've got to so bless me with putting these amazing people in my life. And she, for her senior thesis, she wrote my the business plan. I wouldn't have had to write hey. a business plan for Blue Marble Science. Mm-hmm. Filed a nonprofit, so I formed a nonprofit five three uh, C whatever they're called. All right, yeah. the IRS harassed my ass for yeah. three years. So Bastards. I, 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 I stopped. I no, it's, I no longer do, uh, as uh, a nonprofit. I don't yeah. make any money, but I don't do it as a nonprofit. Mm-hmm. And I went into schools as, uh, Dr. Doug. Mm-hmm. All right. Was told, um, initially that I, I wouldn't do it. I couldn't do it. And I shouldn't do it. Yet again. Okay. Because there was a mad science in Columbia. That's right. Yeah. Okay. And mad science would charge $10 a student. Every student would come away with a goodie bag. Yeah, my kids did that. With some Chinese crap in it uh-huh. that they would never use again. And um, the guy who ran it had his master's degree, decent educator, mm-hmm. okay? And it had nothing to do with the degree, right? But he could only be in so many places. So he would hire someone that just graduated from high school, yeah. give him an hour's instruction and a kit, send him into a school <laughs> with a script. Adventure wanted me to write a script uh, for other people. No, no way. They're doing it like McDonald's. Okay? Like what happens if you could ask the question? It's right. not on the script. So guess what? So I was told I wouldn't, couldn't, shouldn't do it. Uh, I was charging $3 a student. Mm. No goodie bag. Yeah. All right? And people would say, oh, man, science does this. And I'd say, mm. no. No. I'm the real deal. <laughs> yeah. I'm a real scientist. And like we talked about Bill Nye, and I'm not going to call him the science guy because he's – I mean – I'm a real I guess scientist. you could say engineering is a science, maybe? Maybe. No, engineering is engineering. Yeah, it's not. I mean, he doesn't know anything about science, and he lectures people all the time about environmental sciences and all this kind of bullshit. That yeah. He's, he's, a, te- he's a television personality. He's a personality. Yeah. So I started you're out. You're the real McCoy. I saw about, about 4,000 students. Mm-hmm. I, tra- I would get up at 3.30 in the morning and drive to Spartanburg. Oof. All right? Mm-hmm. Be there all day. All right, drive back. I was beating myself to death, and uh, but I was determined, you know, to make this thing work. And uh, word of mouth, uh, I I I wrote concept papers to principals. I wrote concept uh, papers. Uh, I had a learning spiral. I was showing how everything was linked together. Mm-hmm. I had these grand visions. I have no idea where these visions are. Again, I had white papers that are yeah. uh, <laughs> gathering dust somewhere. And, um, and, but it was teachers. I call them my champions. And it would be one teacher that would say to her team, we got to get this guy in here. So here's a teacher putting, she's out on a limb. Mm-hmm. And so when I went into a school, man, okay, mm-hmm. I was determined to deliver because this, this woman had gone to bat for me yeah. at risk. Okay. 
And so I just kept building and building and building. And uh, and I had a couple of advisors that said, ooh, teachers really in second grade have a hard time teaching matter. Uh, third grade, have a hard time teaching about fossils, this. So I would go to school. I would come up with my own in-school field trips. And and I built it from there. And I've seen about 140,000 elementary school students. And these are not assemblies. Yeah. This is 20, 25 kids at a time. Oh, my gosh. And I see them. Uh, I'll come in. I'll start at 8. I'll end at 2. And I'll see every kid in second grade. That is tough. Or any kid in third grade. That's whatever, a tough whatever, schedule, though. Whatever grade it is. At one point, I was doing, uh, what, school years, 185 days. I was doing 140 days. So I was not retired. No. All right. I've cut back now. Now, right now, well, COVID short cheated me um, and short cheated a lot of kids. But now that the COVID protocol, uh, no, the protocols are still there. But you know the restrictions. No. Um, so now I'm about I'm about once a week. You're picking back up. You think is it an incline in activity? You- um, yeah, I I don't advertise. Yeah, my website is still sitting out there. I don't do Twitter. I don't yeah, do. You got to start a Doctor Doug Twitter account, man. Uh, I have one actually, but I haven't actually gone on it in ten years. Crystal Weber told me way back in 2007, oh, you, you have yeah. to have Facebook, mm-hmm. you have to have Twitter, okay? Damn. Social media is the thing. So, I, I had a Twitter page, I have Facebook yeah, but just page. opening an account doesn't okay. do anything. Though. No, no, no. And then I was on it for a bit. And then I, yeah. I was – nobody else was on it mm-hmm. back then. And so, I get more important things to do. I need to go teach the kids. You need a, a manager. Like you need an editor. You need a, a, a social media manager now. Well, some years ago, I thought to uh, actually expand, mm-hmm. um, and uh, through a friend friend of mine, I, I was going to do. I was going to do. Uh, I was going to hire two reputable science teachers who uh-huh. had retired, and so I had some discussion with them first, and then we got uh, almost up to the point of you know, and then I went whoa wait a minute. I said, I'm really sorry. Thank you for showing me your interest. I said, but this is personal. Yeah. This is my mission. You don't want to and here's my mission. it or anything. Making, pos- making positive differences in our schools doesn't get more simple. And, you know, I didn't want to be responsible. I didn't want to get a call at 830. The projector doesn't work. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, I didn't want to be responsible for them not being able to answer a question. Mm-hmm. When a student asks me a question, um, I'll acknowledge the question if I know the answer. All right. I will a- answer it understandably with them. Mm-hmm. If I don't know the answer, that's when I really like it. Yeah. And I'll say, you know, I don't know. But what do we know about it? And then with that young girl or young boy, we will construct what we know about the question. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes that leads us to the answer or to an approximation of an answer. Mm -hmm. And then we'll say, well, what are we going to do now? Well, we're going to have to go to the library or we're going to have to go to the internet. Or I've, I've got some scientist friends of mine. I can contact them and ask them because mm-hmm. the answer is out there yeah, somewhere. Just got to go find it. But anyway, I love questions that I don't know the answer to because then I get a chance to then uh, model, okay, as yeah. best I can, how a scientist thinks. 
Yeah. We don't guess. Right. All right. We go back to first principles and then and then we try to work through it and mm-hmm. then figure out what do we need to do to get the answer. Yeah. Yeah. We we teach the same thing to young soldiers in the army is um it's not that I don't want to hear you say I don't know, but that's not the full answer. The answer is I don't know, but I'm gonna find out and I'll get back to you. Right. And so because you have all the tools at your disposal to right. to answer this question. You just haven't had the opportunity or you haven't taken the time to find it yet. See, so, this, is, this is what makes this is the huge difference between an American soldier, okay, yeah. and a Russian soldier. <laughs> yeah. All right. They're, yeah. They're, you know, we, we, used to, we, we used to pejoratively, you know, refer to some soldiers as grunts, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Well, the Russians are grunts. Yeah. They're, they're told, this is what you do. They're not told, they're no not deviation. taught to think. Yeah. They're not taught, oh- the lieutenant just just caught one. Mm-hmm. All right, all right. Next one in line steps up, takes mm-hmm. over the leadership role. Right. That guy catches it. Next one steps up, yeah. takes over the leadership role. They have nothing like yeah, that. Yeah, that's something that the American military has always since the beginning. Yeah, that's why we've been successful. Yep. Improvise, adapt, overcome. Yeah, you know, know the know the job of the leader yep. above us and the person below us. Make sure they know my job in case they have yeah. to do it one day. Um, yeah. And that's why there's a huge need right now in the business world, in the in the corporate world. They are starving for that mindset because uh, – and the military has great experience with it. When veterans get out, you know, they they can – veterans – a lot of veterans don't realize the opportunity they have in, in the working – in the right. work, uh, field and whatever, right. you know. Well, um, see, the thing is, is that the uh, last time I heard this statistic, and it's an old one, mm-hmm. okay, um, in someone's lifetime, on average, they will change jobs seven times. Mm-hmm. Well, if you come out thinking that you're this, mm-hmm. but you don't know how to think, right? how are you going to be able to adapt yeah. and learn and evolve and morph into so what what I what I try to do whether I'm coaching soccer or whether mm-hmm. I'm in the classroom and whether I'm with a, a second grader or whether I'm with a PhD candidate is to try to uh, help them learn how to think yeah and uh, and believe and trust themselves and believe in themselves mm-hmm. and uh, not foolhardy but 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 know the process to to try to uh, and and if you don't have the answer, all right, find out who does. All right, work on it. Get it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, we we had a group. And that's what the military. That's what that yeah. you were talking about veterans. We had a group that would travel around called the Asymmetric Warfare Group, and um, these were Delta Force operators, guys who are you know, and they would go around and teach uh, groups of soldiers, small groups of soldiers, like hey. This is what you were taught in basic training, right? You have the four fundamentals of marksmanship. What do you think we do as Delta operators? Let's talk about our marksmanship. Is it different than what you do? No, we're just better at it. What makes us better? We're consistent. You know what we use to become consistent? The four fundamentals of marksmanship. And so it's like you have the tools. You're just not using them, right? So, you know, you have the basics, you have all the tools, you have it in your mind. You're thinking, you know, damn, I'm just not a good shooter. Well, no, let's look back and reevaluate the tools that you have and see. 
And I swear, from going to that class, my marks, I could pick up any rifle. It doesn't matter if it's zero to me or somebody else. And I could shoot a target out to 800 meters without a scope. Right? I'm talking an M4 rifle. And I'm not trying to brag on myself, in, in, but I could do it consistently. Like eight out of 10 shots, I could hit a, a man-sized target at 800 meters. Um, <clears throat> and that's was from that going to that class and they opened, like, just like took the blinders off to say, look, this isn't rocket surgery. <laughs> this is not four fundamentals. You practice them over the basics over and over right, again. Right. Uh, and you get, you, you master the basics. Mm-hmm. You think, okay, I don't have a good uh, position to get a different position. I can't get a good sight picture. Mm-hmm. Well, work on that. You know, figure mm-hmm. out what the right sight picture is. There's, there's always an answer to a problem. There's a solution to the problem. You just have to be willing to have the humility to say, I need to go back to my basics. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, in, um, in, in putting together the drilling project, mm-hmm. I mean, who am I <laughs> to put together a drill the world's deepest lake? Well, the first thing I needed to do was go out and find the, the best people. They didn't teach people, you uh, project management pe- at people, Brown? Did no. You, you didn't take pe- a project management? <laughs> people who were smarter than me. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I mean, it, mm-hmm. you know, in order to do this, all right, I, I had to try to get the best and the brightest mm-hmm. to build a team. And at the same time, I had to learn the politics. I had to learn the uh, the language. It's a, there's I, a lot of humility. That I had to it. learn the cultures, you know, throughout all this. All the time, knowing that I was taking a huge risk, um, you know, I learned so much. And then and then to be told, no, I couldn't do it. But thank you, Dr. Covido. Mm-hmm. He was the first one to tell me that I – not the gonna... first one. I, there were probably other examples. But that was the most significant one in my life that I can remember right now. Told me I couldn't. Mm-hmm. And then I, I learned – what I needed to do in order to fulfill mm-hmm. to my dream. So then again, I was told, couldn't do it. Yeah. Blue Marbles, couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. So now when I, when I see, like when I see fifth graders, all right, and I've been seeing them since kindergartners, yeah. like at, at Lamira, okay? But that's just one of dozens of schools mm-hmm. where I see every student from kindergarten to fifth grade, Yeah. all right? So the, my last time I see them as fifth graders, okay, you know, I, I, I wish them well and I put a shot across their bow. I said, listen, you know, you're going to go into middle school now. It's going to be a different ball game. It's going to mm. be harder. You're going to have to work harder. You're going to have to believe in yourself, but you also have to dream and don't let anyone tell you that you, that you're unable to fulfill that dream, mm-hmm. but you have to be prepared to work. And sometimes I'll share them the example of Dr. Corvado. Yeah. Okay. Uh, sometimes I'll share with them the, the drilling project. Mm. I mean, you know, uh, you got to prepare to take risks, you got to work hard, uh, you know, reach, you know, risk, these risks. You, you say you have to take risks, right? Do you feel, I mean, since when I was a kid to now, we've become a risk averse society, right? Like I mean, they call it the, uh, nerfing of the world everything has padding on it everything is has to be have a safety net and be so so safe do you think that there's a point where you become over safe to where it limits your ability to think freely because if there's no risk in the business world 
they would say, if there's no risk, there's not going to be any reward. The greater the risk, the greater the reward. Um, you know, you invest more money, it's more risky, it could have a larger return. <clears throat> so with society today and the way the, and I'm really speaking more of America in general, with Europe, you know, North America, um, there's like this over, I guess you had the, 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 the rise of the helicopter parents, the, you know, the everything, no, you know, trophies for everybody. Everybody's a winner. Um, we're not keeping score. Uh, and I could see some value in that with some kids because they don't even like some kids are so young. They don't at understand some, the concept of scoring. Yeah. At, at some um, ages, it's uh, about having fun and staying interested. Staying interested. Yeah. Right. But at a certain point, and I don't know when that is, but I, I remember as, you know, we didn't play soccer as young as some of the kids are playing now. Um, it was we had kindergarten and first, you know, first grade was really, but we kept score. There was a winner. They just cut the field in half. Mm-hmm. You know, that was mm-hmm. it. And we would play sideways, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but after that, it was on. I mean, it's full on competition and yeah. um, it's fierce. I remember the uh, the sting of failure is is significant. And I learned more from my failures than I did my successes. So if you're limiting the amount of failures a, ki- a child has in your younger years, don't you setting them up for failure, you think, in later life? Well, there's um, the growth mindset and the fixed mindset. Yeah. Okay. And um, so uh, it, it, it's, it, it's hard, but trying to get uh, young people to uh, – don't use the word can't. Mm-hmm. Maybe not able to do it right now, but be able to put, put in the work. Mm-hmm. Okay. And um, – and to keep your mind open that growth yeah. is possible. Yeah. So. Hmm. I don't think we're going to solve all the problems of the world today. No. Though. We're no. running out of time. I've what, enjoyed our conversation. Uh, that's been awesome. Um, the last thing I want to ask you. Yeah. You you have the soccer team, the soccer coaching. Yeah. So you're wearing your shirt, True Bounce Soccer. Mm-hmm. Um, and you do private lessons. Uh, you coach uh, Lexington. What is it? Lexington, Lexington Football Club? Soccer Academy. Lexington Soccer Academy. Um, where can they find you if, if somebody wants some coaching? Well, um, my, my email is, uh, Dr. Doug Williams, all lowercase mm-hmm. with the number four at gmail.com. Okay. And that's, uh, that's probably the easiest, the most efficient way mm-hmm. of getting in touch with me. Okay. Um, I do have an Instagram account, uh, coach, uh, underscore, Doug underscore Williams. And I have some postings on there. I just posted one the other day of a new training method that I had. I, I've, I've been, uh, I've been uh, at the risk of aging myself here. I have been, I have been uh, playing, studying and coaching soccer for 60 years. Mm-hmm. I've, I know more soccer uh, I've forgotten more soccer than most people know. Yeah. Um, and I have a particular training strategy. Uh, it's focused on uh, fun, uh, but also challenge and accepting challenges. But uh, through my through my work at the university and in schools, I, I coach like I teach and mm-hmm. I teach like I coach. And that is to uh, uh, focus on the positives mm-hmm. and correct those things that – 
that uh, need work. So you're not kicking corner kicks at your fifth grader no, not kids. Like that of story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Make them run five miles and then kick balls. Yeah. Um, what's next? What's your new adventure that you're going to be going on? What well, you, what you got? Uh, True Balance Soccer is, uh, I just formed an LLC uh, uh, just less than a year ago. Okay. I've invented a new soccer game oh. called uh, 3v3 Bounder Ball. Nice. Which is based on a whole new curriculum, training curriculum that I've developed using rebounders. So I've developed uh, a training rebounder, a curriculum that goes with it. And then with my um, um, uh, Air Force Sergeant uh, son, Adam, we developed a rebounder that actually has a sensory center uh, so that um, – so instead of nets, mm -hmm. we use a rebounder. It's five feet wide and only 12 inches high. Mm -hmm. So it's really challenging. It works on your fundamentals, yeah. okay? If you hit the rebounder, okay, it's one point. But if you hit the sensory center and set off the horn – it's two points. Okay. So, heck, if I'm going to – I want to score a two-pointer. Yeah. So, I'm going to work on my – and then I have a thing, an arc, which is a no-go zone. Mm -hmm. And what makes this the fastest small-sided game on the planet – yes, can't, you heard me right. Can't dump it in the corner, huh? What happens is, okay, if uh, Matt and I are competing against one another and I'm coming down the field, okay mm – -hmm. And I juke him and I send – I can't – I have to be outside the no-go zone. He can't go inside the no-go zone to defend. Okay. And I score. It's make it, take it. I uh -huh. now can go into the no-go zone and attack the opposing goal. Uh -huh. Matt has to go, oh, oh shoot. I'm, 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 I'm defending in this way. Now I've got to turn and I've got to defend the other goal. Uh -huh. All right. Okay. However, if he steals it from me, he can score. And so it's nonstop action. Yeah. And great for conditioning, great for decision making, and it is fast. And what is the do you have a website for that? Uh yes, but I've forgotten it. True Bounce true, Soccer. True, yes, www.tru-bounce. Okay. Dot uh sorry. Uh, sorry, True Bounce Soccer. Okay. Uh dot com. Okay, we'll put a link And it's to also that. on YouTube. On I've YouTube? got I've got three videos on YouTube, True Bounce Soccer. Okay, we will link and both of those. We're in the young. Show notes. We're we're feeling our way. We it's pretty much me, myself, and I. <laughs> anyway, I'm I'm looking to form a team. Okay. Sound familiar? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Awesome, man. Thank you so much for coming out here. Thank you for the gift. You Thank brought, you. The gifts, plural, that you brought us. Thanks for the invitation. Um, they are in places of prominence in our home. And uh, we're looking forward to our Nostrovia night. Nostrovia. That would be really fun. We'll do it soon. Yeah. And if you have any other colleagues or friends or anybody who wants to come on the podcast, please let me know. They're welcome to come talk about whatever they want to talk about. Um, oh, oh, I forgot. What? The Lake Baikal monster. <laughs> have you heard about that? It's like its own Lake Loch Ness monster, but it's in Lake Baikal. They said it's a giant sturgeon that breathes fire and it has huge scales on it and stuff. Yeah. You didn't see anything creepy out there on the, on the water? Besides drunk Russians. <laughs> no. <laughs> Never saw it? Nope. Oh, man. It must have been in his cave or something. I, I probably didn't have enough vodka. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> everywhere has it. We have lizard men here. You know, everywhere has their own yeah. urban legend. Yeah, thing. no no, no Nessie in Lake no. Baikal. Okay. Right, well, you probably just didn't look hard enough. 
What about the rumor that Russians kept nukes down there? They wanted they hide their nukes in Lake Baikal. Any worries about that? Nope. Okay. UFOs. I heard that they're they're hiding the UFOs and aliens down there. Hey, we're having uh, congressional uh, committees start looking into the UFO stuff. That's called political theater, Doug. <laughs> Stay tuned to the Vote Map podcast for more on the fake alien inv- alien invasion that's going to come. Um, that's called uh, Project Bluebeam. <laughs> Look it up. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for listening, folks. Thank you to our sponsors, Castle Country Store and the Swamp Log Artisans Gallery. Go check out Dr. Doug Williams, his uh, Instagram, truebouncesoccer.com. Look him up on YouTube. And hopefully in a few years, a book. And Blue Marble Science. Blue Marble Science. Org. If anybody knows any educators or looking for an awesome science teacher to come. And um, I come here to Kershaw County. Do you? To Lugoff Elementary. Okay. I do fourth and fifth grade. Awesome. Uh, two times a year. Been blessed to come in. And I keep saying, hey, you know, I got third grade and second grade and first grade and kindergarten <laughs> programs too. Maybe <laughs> next year. Maybe next year. All right. Well, we just got a new um, um, superintendent. So maybe something will change. I doubt it. But <laughs> thank you guys. We love you. Bye.